This is Jocko Podcast number 87 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I'd been away from infantry and from the army I'd grown up in for far too long. Walking through the gates of Coleman Barracks was stepping into the welcome past. The old army had not died after all. The 18th was military perfection. Men stepped smartly across meticulously kept grounds. Starched uniforms, blue infantry scarves, dazzling shined brass and boots, snappy salutes, and cheerful good afternoon sirs marked my journey to the HQ where I'd sign in. The spirit of this fine unit was already infecting me. The hot, stifling, windless day, the ragweed pollen that blew in from adjacent fields covering the camp and immediately activating my hay fever. The run-down, boring camp itself, none of it mattered. As inwardly, I was transported to an island oasis untouched by turbulent seas. And it was all thanks to one man the battle group commanding officer who would forever be my model, mentor, and friend. Colonel Glover S. Johns was the finest senior infantry commander I'd ever seen or ever would see again. We shared a mutual abiding respect almost from the moment we met. He was my kind of soldier and I was his. He was a warrior. Patton's aide before World War II, then during the war he'd hit the beaches of Normandy as part of the 29th Division and fought from those bloody shores all the way across Europe until victory was achieved. As a battalion commanding officer, he'd headed the task force that captured the critical French town of St. Lo. In Korea, he'd served as executive officer, then regimental commander in my own 40th Division. His reputation there was awesome. One story that made its way through the division was that a wild new XO had come into the 224th, gotten down on his belly in the mud to check the unit's machine gun's field of fire, and promptly moved two-thirds of the machine gun bunkers that had sat there for two years. Later, when he took over as commanding officer of the 224th, and the unit moved to a new sector, he'd outposted a spur about 200 yards in front of one of his companies so the North Koreans couldn't do it first. But this move was considered seizing ground and against the no-win rules of the war. And soon, the ex-corps commanding general flew down to John's position to discuss the matter with him. After examining the situation, General White told him he could keep the spur but was never to advance again even his outpost line without express permission from Corps. His blue eyes sparkled like those of a wise and truly tested man who'd long since realized that humor could be found in just about anything. He had seen his share of horror. His cheeks were rosy, and the dueling scar that crossed one of them in no way detracted from his rugged yet gentle old soldier face. Maybe the scar even enhanced it. I don't know, but it sure gave him more character and provided a good yarn to boot. In any event, 
Colonel Glover S. Johns was a 49-year-old stud. Colonel Johns was a basics man and a total soldier. He taught and insisted that his company commanders teach things like terrain appreciation, the knowledge of which was a basic tool of a soldier's trade, to be able to look at a piece of ground and appreciate the slightest differences in the contour, to notice how the ground unfolds and be able to think there's cover over there. Cover, the one essential, providing protection from direct enemy fire to recognize a streamline, a gully, or a treed area as an avenue of approach through which a unit could move unseen, to understand and identify the best ground from which to launch or repel an attack, shoot, scoot, and communicate. The morning battle drill began with fire and maneuver, one man firing while his buddy moved, a fire team moving while its counterpart fired. Colonel Johns likened it to a fighter's bobbing, weaving, and jabbing. We kept the mythical enemy pinned down while we jabbed our way to close on his position. That's cover and move, by the way. The colonel was right there with us to set the example. And we did it. Until we got it right. We'd end up black and blue, running, hitting the ground, and rolling into firing position with full field equipment on is not without pain. But no one bitched because Johns again and again reinforced the simple equation. The quicker you get to the ground and you get your weapon into position, the sooner you'll be delivering effective fire on the enemy and the longer you'll stay alive. Still, this truism was just one part of the overall strive to better your best philosophy that characterized the first of the 18th under Colonel Johns and Deputy commanding officer couch in couch's words it was our policy to encourage excellence among the soldiers particularly in bayonet training unarmed combat shooting and total physical fitness this is what really makes a soldier if he masters these subjects he'll fight from my experience in Korea I could not have agreed more So, that's a little opener mm-hmm. from a book called About Face. Sure. My favorite book by, it's written by Colonel David Hackworth, and he's talking about a guy that was his commander in the early 1960s. Hackworth had gotten out of the army and then came back in after a couple of years because he realized civilian life was not fun. Sure. And so he came back in and he got stationed in Germany and this guy by the name of uh, Colonel Glover S. Johns, who, by the way, he dedic- Hackworth dedicates, he dedicates the book to infantrymen and to some other soldiers that he worked with along the way, but to Glover Johns, he says, dedicates this book to Glover Johns who showed us how to lead. Hmm. So, Glover Johns, outstanding combat leader, and luckily, we can all learn from Glover Johns not only from what he passes through Hackworth in Hackworth's book, but also from his own book. Glover S. Johns wrote his own book called The Clay Pigeons of St. Lowe about his push from Normandy and across France that Hackworth just referenced. 
Now it's interesting when we go into this book, The Clay Pigeons of St. Lowe, he, he writes the book in the third person. And he says that it was just easier for him to write it that way. So in other words, he's, he doesn't say, I did this and I did that. He says, Major Johns did this and Major Dodd Johns did something else. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is he said that one of the reasons he was able to, or one of the reasons that he did that was because the guy that was commanding in combat, was a battalion commander in combat, was different from his normal self. Mm, right, right. And so he had this combat Johns, yeah. combat Glover Johns that was out there leading things, and he had normal Johns yeah. that was the way he lived his normal life. But it was easier for him to write and more natural for him to write about this major Johns guy in the third person. And he also likes it because it can gives him it gives him the ability to kind of detach from right. and explain what was going on. Yeah. So when you hear it, it's all about Major Johns instead of being about me and about I. But it's it's him. And even though it's written from the third person, it is absolutely a first person account from a battalion commander in combat close intense combat and let's pick it up going to the book the clay pigeons of st. Lo here we go Sharp ballistic cracks pounded his eardrums so rapidly they seemed like one impossibly prolonged rifle shot. He was instantly paralyzed with overwhelming fright. The radio operator, Jimmy, slumped forward at his feet. Another man stumbled past to fall into the ditch ahead, and Newcomb cleared the eight-foot hedgerow apparently with one jump. But the major was too shocked to move. His stomach knotted itself into a tight ball. It jammed against his pounding heart while his breath stopped completely for an instant. Then came in jerky gasps. The hair on his head felt as if it were rising like the hair on a cat's back. His skin prickled all over. But the most awful thing was the cold, empty feeling in his guts. The burst of German machine gun fire lasted only seconds, but it seemed like a lifetime before he could reach up and snatch a grenade from his pistol belt. He'd never heard a bullet crack by, inches from his head. He didn't know they sounded like that. He thought there was a German with a burp pistol behind the nearest tree on top of a hedgerow. He grabbed the pin on the grenade, but before he could throw it, something made him stop and yell, Anybody on the other side? He got a quick answer, Hell yes! Before he could lower his arm, the blast of a rifle right in his lap made him flinch. He squirmed back even closer against the hedgerow as Martin and Grimsell went into action. They'd been at the front all 11 days since a continuous line had been established in Normandy. The crack of bullets was nothing new to them. Almost side by side, lying flat in the ditch, They fired methodically across him and over Jimmy's head. Mechanically, he checked the pin in the grenade, then, still a little dazed, hooked it back onto his belt harness. He looked at the man who had fallen in the ditch and now was trying to weakly push himself up. It was Lieutenant Sadler, his face already greenish-gray with shock. He had been hit five or six times in the head, chest, and both arms. Major Johns knew instinctively that Sadler was as good as dead. He called to him to lie still and take it easy, but the Charlie Company commander 
was already beyond hearing. Johns felt that he ought to do something constructive, something to get their minds off the tragedy that had just struck. But it was without inspiration, merely numb. Hey, you guys, yelled Grimsel. Let's scram out of here. That brought the commander out of the daze he had been in ever since the deafening burst of enemy fire perhaps two minutes before. He leaned forward and shook Jimmy's shoulder. Come on, Jim, it's all over now. You can get up. But Jimmy didn't move. Major Johns shook him again. Then he saw blood oozing slowly, thickly, brightly across his own shoe. Gently, he pulled at Jimmy's far shoulder. A neat, clean little bullet hole in the boy's helmet came into view, so the Major knew that Jimmy was dead. Something impelled him to pull Jimmy over until he could look into his face. The eyes were closed, and an odd little half-smile made Jimmy look as if he were asleep, dreaming pleasant dreams. Slowly, the Major lowered him back to the ground, and for a fleeting instant, watched Jimmy's lifeblood continue to flow across his shoe. So that's his really his first experience in combat. And you can see obviously it's it's a hell of a wake up call. And the whole book the whole book is like this. It's it's an incredible book. The the way he describes the battles and how they're laid out and the way he lays out his own thoughts and what's going on it's just a, it's it's a, it's an outstanding book and it's one of these books where as I, I had to consciously say to myself okay Jocko you cannot read this whole book on the podcast mm-hmm. we need to you know people need to read it for themselves but the mm-hmm. book is the, the description of combat like that that opening is phenomenal mm-hmm. so let's go back to the book now where that first battle's over, and he's having some thoughts. Here we go, back to the book. As he walked, he couldn't keep his thoughts away from the hot spot he'd been in a few minutes before, and the lessons he learned so quickly, but at such a price. In little more than an hour of his first fight, he had lost two company commanders, two radio operators, and three other men, besides just escaping death himself. As he thought about the crack of those machine gun bullets, his stomach began to squirm again until by a conscious effort he forced it to behave. He couldn't understand why he hadn't been hit too. Jimmy's head had been not more than two feet from his own. Newcomb in the front and Sadler directly behind him had been hit. The whole burst must have missed him by scant inches, he decided, and he very seriously thanked God for his safety. At the same time, he promised never again to risk the lives of others if he could avoid it. It was a bitter lesson repeated every time the eyes of his mind focused on Jimmy's bright blood oozing over his shoe or on Sadler's sudden death. He looked down at the shoe shuddered at the still red stain and tried to scuff it off on the grass. 
On his way to the regimental command post, the major passed a knocked-out Sherman tank. What distinguished this smoking brown hulk from others he had seen that day was the single, blackened, claw-like hand and forearm that was thrust out of the turret toward the sky. The fingers were separate and more than half curled like the talon of a striking eagle. But this hand was not striking. It seemed rather to be calling down an imprecation on the fate that had let it die there in agony. So now he gets to the regimental commander. Well, boom, the regimental commander, what's going on? I've just been trying to get to you. John saluted it as he answered. Sir, we're stuck at the second hedgerow, and I had to use my reserves to protect my flanks. It doesn't look as if we'll get to LaForge today unless we have better luck later. Have many casualties? I don't know about the companies yet because I haven't had any reports from them except the yells about their flanks and counterattacks. But Nab was wounded early. Sadler is dead, and I've lost two operators besides three other men out of my own CP group. He was still too full of his experience not to want to tell about it. The colonel listened sympathetically. Well, he said, when the major was through, we've got to keep going regardless. Division wants to get LaForge tonight. So, yeah, you just had that rough day, first day of combat. Guess what? We're still going. And, it, you know, one of the things that I, in that opening paragraph that I pointed out was you could see his reaction when that first gunfight broke out. Mm-hmm. His reaction was sort of overwhelming overwhelmed by the whole scenario mm-hmm. but his two guys and what happened is and you know he talks about this in the book but he had gone on to Normandy but he wasn't in charge of a battalion yet he was sort of uh, back with the regimental command and then the, one of the battalion commanders was out of the fight and I forget if the battalion commander was killed or wounded but he went and took this battalion commanders job mm-hmm. so he wasn't on the real front lines until they were starting to push through France a little bit and it was only a matter of days but these well I guess it was 11 days because these guys he said that these other guys had been on the front lines for 11 days so these guys it's been 11 days but guess what they're they start getting shot at boom they're in they're they're in the mode they're returning fire Mm -hmm. and you could see they're returning fire really close so close that it scared him yeah and and that's one of the things that you know, a lot of times I talk about simunition and training with simunition and how awesome it is, and, and that's t- totally true. And I love training with simunition, and it really is very beneficial for your tactical skill level. But you also absolutely have to do live fire. And the reason you have to do live fire, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons you have to do it. You know, you have to learn to shoot real bullets and hit real targets or with your bullets. But also, guns are loud. Yeah. And you need to condition yourself to be used to having a, a Mark 48 machine gun four inches, maybe not four inches, but like 16 inches from your head, mm-hmm. and your buddy is dumping rounds downrange, and you have to be able to think during that and not be overwhelmed by it. Yeah, the the simunition. This one's an ask. Like, how? What's the difference in loudness? It's not even comparable. So is it? Is, so it's not even really like not, a gunshot. No, it's not it's, like a gunshot. It's, like it's not something. comparable. It's not the noise is not comparable. Yeah. The noise is is less than a cap gun kind oh, of. Oh, okay. Just like, psh, psh, psh. Yeah, yeah, like an airsoft or something. Like a, this. a gun is loud, and a yeah. Mark Forty Eight machine gun. 
<laughs> this is really it loud. It's really loud. <laughs> yeah, it's and so it's sending loud. little shock waves. Yeah, you know, every round is saying. like a little shock wave yeah. that you get. Little. And right. so that's why when that's why it is so important to train live fire and it's also important to be comfortable not only yourself shooting in close proximity with other people, but also them shooting near you because you've got to trust the yeah. guys that are around you. Yeah. Now there's standard operating procedures that there's things that you don't do that keep it safe, but it's still, I mean, when somebody makes a bad, if somebody makes a really bad mistake, they can walk into your field of fire. Yeah. And so you have to be heads up, but you still have to take shots with people that are really close to you. Yeah, in a firefight, by the way. Well, yeah, in a firefight, but if you haven't done it during training, your first your first minute in a firefight is gonna be just, yeah, just yeah. overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, and no. you're not gonna be overwhelmed by enemy fire. Yeah. You're gonna be overwhelmed by your own guy yeah, shooting the mirror in the and you're gonna be hitting getting hit by brass and and just it hurts hot you know, brass, yeah hot brass and the the links coming out of a mark 48 are like little weapons themselves and when they <laughs> hit you, they, they, yeah we had a one of our machine gunners was a, a lefty and he picked up and started shooting who he, he picked up a machine gun and started shooting left-handed mm. and that dumps the brass basically right into <laughs> your right bicep and he had yeah. he had a bruise on his on his right arm that looked like somebody beat him with yeah. a with a baseball bat in the arm that's what a mark 48 ejector port does to you Dang. doesn't play around so again going back to the situation he's in right now he's he's had all these casualties and they're like the major says hey yep uh Regardless, we got to keep going, which is, which is the way war, actually is. Yeah. So, that night, um, he has a little company, little huddle with the company commanders, and you know, just to just to kind of spell this out, if you're wondering what this is all about. So he's got the, he's a battalion commander. So and he's actually got this written out in the book, but a battalion, a battalion. In 1944 was about 900 guys 900 men 28 officers you got three companies the three companies are broken down into three platoons each one of those platoons has a platoon leader each one of the companies has a company commander usually a captain and so that's what he's talking about so he so that those are your kind of your 150 man fighting elements are these companies with three platoons in them of 50 people each about mm-hmm. and it's weird because people always think the, the military is everything's perfectly structured but actually this this changes all the time mm. not based on but like based on your mission you know sometimes you you might have a platoon that needs to get plussed up yeah. or a company that's short of people so there's no there's no consistent just all the time number let me see what he says the actual number that they were supposed to have in a, in a company at this time was each rifle company was made up of six officers and 186 men that's what they were supposed to have in them now you're gonna find out real quick that they rarely have even close to a hundred, but that's what they're supposed to have. So at this point, he's bringing in these three company commanders to talk to them about kind of a plan and also to get a debrief on on what happened during the day and what they're planning to do ahead. Here we go, back to the book. He thought a moment, and this is, this is a, one of the company commanders named Lieutenant Ryan and he's talking and he says he thought a moment and then added we might make it across the road if we pour a lot of smoke and mortars into him and then rush him but it'll take but it'll, but it's getting awfully late to be beating around in this kind of country 
So they're trying to figure out how to move forward and Lieutenant Ryan, that was kind of Lieutenant Ryan's suggestion. Let's mortar them, put a bunch of smoke out, and then we can move. But guess what? It's getting late, and if we're running around once it gets dark, it's going to get scary. Ryan stopped and looked at Kenny. It was Kenny's turn. And Kenny, you're going to find out, is a legit badass. Sir, I only had a few minutes to look things over before Weddle came along and invited me back here to see you, but that orchard is a terrible place. No cover anywhere. Machine guns covering every inch of it. We lost a lot of men in there the first time. He paused. But we'll do the best we can. Well, rough or not, we're going ahead, the Major stated flatly. By the way, Kenny just took over for for one of the company commanders that had been uh, wounded or killed. Now, they start pushing, and all of a sudden, they're pushing forward. And again, I have to... St- Skip through this book and I'm trying to highlight the leadership scenarios or the things that reveal the way human beings react in hard situations mm-hmm. but when you read this book yourself you can really follow the tactical decision-making process and also how the battles went and what happened mm. obviously I can't go through the whole thing right now but at this point, they had started pressing, and all of a sudden, he sees guys running away, running. So, you know, as the company commander, and he talks about this, where he positions himself, and obviously he doesn't position himself right on the front with the platoons, mm-hmm. he's back a little bit. And at this point, guys start. he sees guys are running back towards him. At first, he thinks it might be Germans. He's, no, it's Americans. Mm-hmm. It's his guys. And here we go, back to the book. The major got to his feet. He started a crouching run to the left. He had nearly reached the end of the field when four or five men yelling, don't shoot, don't shoot, piled over the hedgerow that separated Charlie and Baker companies. He stopped, carbine alert. As he lowered his gun, wondering what this was all about, a figure stepped out from the hedgerow and voiced the same question. What's going on here anyway? Just what's this all about? It was Lieutenant Iperion, arms spread wide to catch the running men, carbine slung over his shoulder, the picture of calm. He caught the leading man by his jacket, which piled the others up in a tight little knot. The man panted, Krauts, paratroopers, they're right behind us, run! Iperion glanced over the man's shoulder, unmoved. Well now, I don't see any Krauts, just look. The men looked back. All they could see were several Charlie Company men standing quietly, rifles ready. The leader of the runaways relaxed, then shuddered violently. Hyperion went on. I don't think there's any Krauts chasing you at all. Let's just go see about this. The man tried to pull away from him. But there were, he cried. There were, I tell you. They came right over the hedgerow and shot down, right down the whole squad. They got the sergeant and all the rest. We're the only ones left. They nearly got me. Look. He poked a finger through a hole in his jacket. But Hyperion, unimpressed, moved in the direction of Baker Company even as the man protested, dragging him along while the others followed meekly. Well, Hyperion went on, let's just go see what Captain Weddle has to say about all this. He called softly to the men guarding the company flank. See anything? No, sir, the answer came back quickly and calmly. The mortar observer and his little group of panic-stricken men disappeared over the hedgerow. The Major knew he had just seen a wonderful example of leadership at its very finest. Iperion quickly, calmly, and efficiently had stopped what could have been a rout. So, one leader steps out, and really what he's doing, if you think about it, he's detached. 
because he wasn't in that situation where some Germans came over and obviously shot at him or at close range, killed a couple guys, you know, would have would have wounded this soldier who got shot through his jacket. Mm-hmm. But he just gets he kind of gets the guy to detach. Hey, look, there's no one there. Calm down. Let's go have a look. Mm-hmm. Let's take a step back. And that kind of calmness prevented everyone because because what can go in the other direction, right? What can go the other direction? You see people running. Yep. That's what happens. You see people running, you start running. Mm-hmm. And you know that that was very interesting in the in the I don't know if you remember some of those police shootings where I remember there's one in New York City where something like 57 rounds were fired at somebody that was unarmed. And everyone's going, "Why? Why was everyone shooting?" And I'll tell you what happens is you know, for some reason they think if you think somebody's has a weapon, or a suspect or is going to do something bad and now you've got five or six people that are holding a gun on them mm-hmm. well when one person starts shooting when people are not detached and when people are caught up in the moment everyone starts pulling the trigger yeah. and it's <clears throat> it's it can be really devastating it can be really devastating yeah so but when people are used to that kind of stress yeah. and they're calm and they're detached one person takes a shot you you, you actually instead of just firing yourself you right. actually assess yeah. and say okay what is he shooting at I need to get cover so there's that's why that training is so important to get people at a high stress level and still think f- through things and still yeah. be detached the stress is going to be there put it in a box monitor it don't get in it because yeah. you're going to make bad decisions you might not make any decision. You might just go off your reactions, which yeah. are, so I'm sitting here with a gun, people are shooting, I'm going to shoot too. Yeah, that's not, I mean, it's like how you say when you're not trained, you don't have experience in those types of situations like uh, your, the, the shooting example. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where you see it in jiu-jitsu when you start, it's exact, literally the exact same thing. Where So in a shooting situation, one guy shoots, you hear the gunfire, basically your brain just says, okay, it's on. Yeah, it's on 100%. Let's go a full speed 100%. It's on you can't like gun shots are being fired. It's not not on you got to go 100%. So in jujitsu when you first start, you know how like the guy's just going full speed the whole time. Yeah, you know, you're in a spot where it's like you're, you can't move here. You can't you're completely trapped right here. Not mm-hmm. submission necessarily, but you're trapped and like, it's going crazy, you know, yep. because just because you don't know they, it's know. on. It's either Doesn't it's on or it's not on. Yeah. So when you're and trained, you the just difference know. is though you're what you're talking about is an individual individual moment what I'm talking about is group it's a group think scenario yeah where you know just like it, it happens when there's a, a a gunshot and everyone starts running people mm. that, but the people in the back of the crowd don't even know what they're running gotcha, from. they yeah. just see people running yeah. so they're running yeah 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 it's true well you imagine how amped you are you think there's a bad guy in a dark alley and you're you're there with four of your police partners or your or your your military partners you're looking down now you think there's a insurgent there and all of a sudden a round cracks off <sighs> you're, you're lucky and there's a there's a situation that happened where there where there was an Iraqi soldier that had an accidental discharge you know what that is like we <laughs> like it was Leif's platoon and Leif's Leif's platoon was taking down a building and I was actually outside the building you know because we were taking down multiple buildings but they were in one building and all of a sudden Crack, crack, crack. Couple rounds get shot off. And you know what? It was actually, I'm pretty sure that it was, I'm pretty sure Andrew Paul. This is a whole cast of characters. I'm pretty sure Andrew Paul was at like the head of the train or close to the front of the train in inside that they were inside this building. Mm-hmm. Rounds get fired. 
and Andrew Paul's thinking, okay, I think I think I remember Andrew Paul telling me this. Andrew Paul's like, okay, well, we're gonna grenade these. We're gonna throw frag grenades into this next room because people are shooting at us. Mm. And it was a guy, another heads up guy, a couple feet back, that f- knew where the gunfire came from and where it came from was an Iraqi soldier, friendly Iraqi soldier, had cracked off rounds, and accidentally, accidentally, and you know, luckily that. That guy was a great guy, a really heads up guy. Grabbed yeah. him, almost killed, almost <laughs> choked the shit out of him right there. But can you imagine you're clearing a house where there's suspected insurgents, yeah. and all of a sudden rounds are fired? Yeah. Well, now you're, you, but this is the discipline. Yeah. And and the guys knew. Okay, the guys didn't all just freak out and started shooting. Right. The guys were, you know, somebody said, "Hey, well, somebody grabbed the person that shot." Hey, that was an AD. Okay, wrap it back down, wind it down, everyone calm. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. There's the difference between guys that have been trained really well and when you haven't been through that kind of training. And also, luckily, that was that didn't happen on the the, the second night of deployment. We were, you know, further into the deployment where mm-hmm. guys had been through. It's just like we just talked about. Guys had guys had been through plenty of firefights at this yeah. point, so they weren't freaked out yeah, that there was gunshots. Yeah, they were like, okay, wait a second, where is this gunshots coming from? Mm-hmm. But that could have gone really, really nasty. Mm-hmm. So train, train realistically. All right, at this point, and, and also, just like some of the other books we've, we've read about World War II, where we've got, you know, it's basically a movement. It's basically continually moving, trying to take down targets, trying to move forward, trying to get through France, trying to get to Berlin. That's mm. that's the situation, and it's the same thing here. These guys, this these battalions and this regiment, and they basically the, the whole task force is trying to move from, from city to city or town to town through France, and that's what's going on here. So it's, it's a continual series of attack, dig in, Attack dig in attack dig in and you know, you can tell from the title of the book what they're going for is this this final You know city of st. Lo in France So at this point There's an attack that they were getting ready to go on and he's trying to figure out why it got canceled and he's talking to uh, The commander and he says I think I think you got farther from where you started than anyone else so he's telling, he's telling Major Johns, your battalion went further than anyone else. Back to the book. In fact, I believe that's why division canceled your attack. If you'd made La Forge, you would have been way out on a limb and stood a chance of being cut off. Major Johns, elated at their comparative success, was thankful that he had not renewed the attack and perhaps made another 500 or 1,000 yards. They would have been out front like clay pigeons for anyone to knock down. It was the first time he had seen a practical application of what was popularly known as the big picture, supposedly concocted for edification of high brass and war correspondence, yet sufficiently vague to cover a certain amount of error on the ground. So the reason I I wanted to call that out is he's admitting that from his perspective, like, why are you stopping my attack? And at this point, they had they'd gotten bogged down. Then they were ready to go again. Then they got bogged down, and now they were ready to go. And they get told stop. Mm-hmm. And so his first reaction is kind of, "What do you wait? Why are we stopping? We've actually got some momentum right now." Mm-hmm. And then he finds out that from the big picture, the reason you're not attacking is because you're too far out ahead of everyone. If you get go any further, you might get surrounded and cut off. Now, this is. A situation where understanding why mm-hmm. <laughs> why is so helpful and especially if you push that all the way down to the frontline troops and to the frontline leadership 
that's out there thinking, hey, we finally made some some offensive progress and we can move and we can really take it to the enemy. And now you're telling us to stop? What is going on? The headquarters is stupid. They don't get it. They don't understand. Actually, they do understand. Yeah. But they need to do a better job of explaining why so that the, so that the people know. All right, moving on to this next section. Here he's checking out kind of his line now that they're now that they're dug in a little bit he'd gone to regiment uh, you know it's really easy to forget that these guys and I talk about this a bit but the the best type of communications that they have is when they actually run wires between different between regiment between battalions between the companies they they try and run wires because the radios are fairly temperamental on whether they work or not so they use radio as a backup but the primary communication is is running a wire and he had just gone back to regiment to meet face to face because meeting face to face is very important and you know he just comes back up and he asks one of the company command actually I think it was his his ops officer Newcomb he says hey any news and Newcomb his ops officer says nope everything's quiet as a church the S3 looked at the battalion commander in the starlight and grinned as he went on. Now, Major, you don't have to concern yourself with everything up here. You just leave the details to us. We're used to looking after them. So a little bit of decentralized command. Don't worry about it, boss. We, we, we got this. We're going to be all right. Now, next day rolls around, and here we go. Back to the book. Around 1000, the Germans shelled the battalion heavily, but they didn't follow up. follow this up with an attack. By 1100, the wounded had all been evacuated and the wire lines had been relayed to the regiment. The major instructed Grimsel to collect all five company commanders and meet him as soon as possible at the crossroads of the edge of the woods from which they had first attacked. It was only a little way from the regimental command post to the edge of the woods. He got there well before the others. When they came up a few minutes later, he, he missed... Newcomb before he caught the meaning of their odd ma- manner. Grimsell's set face should have given him a hint as the S2 stepped forward, saluted very stiffly, and said with visible effort to keep his emotions under control, Sir, I must report that Captain Newcomb is dead. The others looked silently at the ground and tears began to stream down the gentle Grimsell's face. The news struck the Major with the force of a physical blow. Of all the fine men he had met since taking command of the battalion, Newcomb had been one of the very best. He was quick, willing, and intelligent, wise far beyond his 24 or 25 years. He also stared at the ground for a moment and then asked quietly, how did it happen? Ryan spoke up, same sniper, same place as the dock. So a dock had been killed earlier by a sniper. One of my men warned Nuke to stay out of that gap in the hedgerow, but he took the steel part of his helmet off and sat down on it, right square in the gap itself. The sergeant, who thought the captain must have gone nuts all of a sudden, was coming after him to drag him away, but too late. The sniper got him right in the temple. Johns felt numb inside, but to dwell on his sorrow wouldn't help. Nodding solemnly, he leveled his finger at Captain Weddell. You are now Lagoon Red 3, but you will retain command of your company until we complete the move into these woods. 
Weddle, equally grave, replied, Yes, sir. I have a little news, too. Lieutenant Chadwick got half his helmet knocked off by a burp gun during all that shooting a while ago. He caught either a part of his helmet or some of the slugs in his arm. He's out, but he isn't hurt badly. He'll be back. Major Johns, who had never met Chadwick, merely nodded again. It didn't hurt so much when you didn't know the man. Furthermore, a wound, regardless of its severity, lacked the awful finality of death. Chadwick's temporary loss meant one less officer, whereas Newcomb's death left a hole in his heart. Although he knew Weddle would probably be a good S3 too, Newcomb, in the four short days he had known him, had become a friend. Grimsell had moved a little away from the others. He was leaning against a tree, his head down in the curve of his arms, sobs shaking his body. He and Newcomb had become close friends for years and had worked together daily. The Major spoke to Captain Menzer, the headquarters company commander. See the Lieutenant Grimsell has pulled off somewhere where it's quiet and given a chance to lie down and get some rest. If he objects, tell him it's an order. I don't want to see him around anymore today. Menser, small and dapper, saluted sharply. Yes, sir. I'll look after George, all right. These guys are taking casualties at just an incredible amount. And, you know, you see a couple things in here that we've heard before. You know, you see the major realizing that that Grimsel he's done he needs a break and you know he says get him off the line get him somewhere he can take a break and you also see these guys filling billets and just getting promoted you know battlefield promoted the guy was one of the company commanders Weddle he becomes the he becomes the operations officer boom on the spot it's it's Really, you can see why this book was one of Hackworth's favorite books. So now they're they're holed up for a while. And here we go, back to the book. Ten days dragged by while the battalion sat in Bois de Bretel. If the days were sometimes dull, they were rarely uneventful. Men were wounded or killed nearly every day by artillery, mortars, or the fire from self-propelled 88s that could move unseen into positions from which they could fire into the tops of trees of the Bois and then pull back before the artillerymen could bring fire on them. Those casualties were bad enough, but they were to be expected. There was one incident that the battalion commander thought they could have got along very nicely without Regiment had directed that the battalions erect barbed wire along their whole front, which they did cheerfully. But when a truckload of anti-personnel mines came down, the Major looked at them with misgivings. Those things were as dangerous to the people who laid them as those as they were to the enemy, he thought. So he supervised the, the mine laying carefully, meticulously noting the location of each mine on a large-scale sketch of the area being mined. The day after all the mines were laid, he heard the flat, muffled roar of a landmine. At once he ran toward the sound. He got there with the aid men, 
to watch with sorrow and anger while they evacuated three men from the middle of their own minefield. One of them was dead. The last litter carried Iperion, who, badly hit in the legs with several fragments, did not know how severely he was hurt. The other wounded men, unconscious, was being placed on the medical jeep when still another litter came around the corner of the little farmhouse that stood on the edge of the woods. The man on this litter had his eyes closed, his face twisting horribly. He jerked over, he jerked all over, bringing his legs up so hard the aid men had to hold him down on the litter. The major, looking at the man in wonder, asked, What's the matter with him? The aid men were contemptuous. Ah, said one, this guy never got hit by nothing. He was in a hole 50 yards from where it happened, but he started screaming and yelling and carrying on something awful. We thought he was hit, but he ain't got a hole in him. He was like this when we got to him. Johns realized he had just seen his first case of neuropsychosis, commonly called combat exhaustion or CE. It wasn't the only one he was to see. So, you got, fr- I guess that's, is that friendly fire? Is that friendly fire when you hit one of your own landmines? Nightmare. Now, and also, the, you start seeing some, some psychological damage to guys on the, on the front line. Mm. And, you know, that guy's not going to be any good. He can't fight. He's literally screaming and jerking around. They have to hold him down. All right, now the battalion is going to move and and take over a whole area um, from the 3rd Armored Division. And it's in moving into this area, it's got 300 replacements coming in. So, so think about that. Battalion's supposed to be 900 people, mm-hmm. and they're getting 300 replacements. So that tells you, and again, I am breezing. I'm skipping. I'm not even breezing. I'm not, not breezing through. I'm skipping so much of the fighting and combat in this book, but it's just going on continuously. And at this point, they're going in. They, have, they already have 300 replacements. So they've, mm-hmm. they've had 300 people uh, you know, taken out or, or either, either wounded or killed. So at this point, Lieutenant Ryan's company is on a patrol, and they're going to go set up an outpost mm. into some pretty, pretty rough area. And as the patrol is out there, here we go. Then came the first shots from the patrol. They were going in well, and it looked for a few seconds as if Ryan was going to get to his outpost. But a flare of three red star clusters floated up from the German lines, and all hell broke loose again. Every Kraut gun that had been used to help stop the third armored, plus probably a few that had come in late, opened up on about 150 yards of of the Abel Company front. It was concentrated, thunderous murder such as no one in the battalion had ever seen before. Ryan's line was a mass of seething, leaping flame that looked as if it were fed from below rather than from an inconceivable torrent of shells that came on and on and on. The barrage switched suddenly from the company to the battalion, 
command post area itself. The battalion commander and his staff, hearing the first whine of the shells, dived for the new command post hole where they huddled while the walls shuddered and dirt rained down from the roof. Concussion blew out the candles, but nobody was hurt. The German gunners switched to C Company for a few rounds, then went right back to their prime target, Abel Company. While they were pounding Kenny's company, a single short call came in over the 300, which is their radio. Abel 6 is clipped. That meant Ryan had been hit, but there were no details. 20 minutes after that pretty red star cluster went up, all was quiet again except for some moans and cries for medics that floated back from Abel Company. But at least no German infantry had come in under fire. In the twenty in that twenty minutes, the company lost fifty-four men plus its company commander. Almost every man in the patrol had been caught above ground and was killed or wounded, while most of the other casualties came from tree and hedgerow bursts that sent fragments down into the holes. The men of the command post group gathered around the hole, silently watched the parade of walking wounded that filed slowly by on their way to the aid station. Occasionally, a man would stumble or waver, whereupon a messenger or wire man would jump to help him. Every aid man and litter in the battalion was already up at the able line, and the first litters were not far behind the walking wounded. Some of the victims moaned, and a few cried out, a little, now and then, but most were very quiet. Johns was glad he could not see their faces in the dark. The last litter went by with no word from Ryan. Johns was beginning to hope he hadn't been hurt badly. When four men loomed out of the darkness, each carrying a corner of a blanket. Ryan was half sitting, half lying in the makeshift litter, gritting his teeth at the pain of the wounds in an arm and a leg. They laid the blanket down gently in front of the major who stripped off his coat and laid it over the company commander. Ryan managed to work up a feeble grin. It didn't work too good, did it, boss? That's, you know, when you're the company, when you're the battalion commander and you come up with a plan with a company commander and you think you've got everything right and you lose 54 guys in a company in 20 minutes and your company commander comes back and says it didn't go too good, did it, boss? It's a heavy weight. Now, they do end up pushing forward, they get some ground, and he's out checking, and you're going you're gonna to find this out, and he talks about it, but he, he goes forward to find out what's going on and make sure the guys see him, and at one point, he's checking an outpost, a little outpost where they're guarding this certain area, and all the guys in the group are focused on a tank, an old burned out tank that's mm-hmm. out there in front of them. And he comes up to them, and here we go, back to the book. John's pointed to the corner. Does it take all three of you to watch that tank while the whole German army could crawl up to within 10 feet of you without knowing it? The 
The sergeant's mouth dropped open. God, Major, I never even thought about it after they shot at us from the tank last time. Well, you better damn straight start thinking about your flanks if you want it. If you want to end up being able to think at all I wouldn't give a damn if they knocked all three you stupid bastards out But if they got you they'd have a good chance of getting into the middle of your company and I wouldn't like that Now damn you start thinking Again, you know what he's detached Mm -hmm. Those guys just got shot at from those that tank they're not worried about their flank. They're worried about that tank. Another sniper being in there, another machine gunner sneaking up into it. Mm-hmm. So he's detached. He rolls up and sees, hey, th- I see that you're focused on the tank, but you can't, you gotta keep thinking. Mm-hmm. Going back to the book, orders came down during the night directing Lagoon Red, Major John's 1st Battalion of the 115th Infantry Regiment would relieve Lemon Red by midnight of the following day. Lemon was codenamed for the 116th, whose Red, 1st Battalion, was holding the line to the left of where Lagoon Red had hopped off nearly three weeks before. So they're going up to relieve and, and hold the line. They're going up to, to, to take positions and hold them. Meeting the commander of this, of this group that they're taking the place of, back to the book, the big commander introducing himself shook hands all around. Then he took a deep breath and started in on a careful, detailed briefing. Fellows, he said, this is a hot spot. I know you've all been in hot, lots of them before, but please take my word for it. This one is really hot. He paused and looked at the officers as if to make sure they were going to take his word for it. Then he went on, we've got Nazi paratroopers on the other side of the hedgerows. They're the best that Hitler has and they know it. They don't give us much rest. We don't give them any. We have casualties every day, so please do your best not to cause any more than we have to take anyway. My boys have been here for two weeks now, and they're getting right touchy, so if any of you get snapped at, don't, t- don't pay attention to it. Just go on, and they'll get over it. So th- this guy's guys are pretty burnt out at this point. And they do this. They do this turnover, and he goes out. And, and again, the turnover happens. There's more combat. There's more casualties. Um, and then he's going out. But they things settle down, and he's going out to check the line. And here we go back to the book as usual. Major Johns asked a number of men how they were getting along. He got a, one answer that surprised him. A sergeant said, well, sir, everything's okay. It's a tough spot, but I figure we're as good as any other outfit to hold it down, and somebody's got to do it. But I sure wish the major would get around and see us more often. Does the men a world of good to see you down here in the lines? The major, who had thought he was getting around about as often as any battalion commander should, was seriously concerned because this sergeant didn't seem to think so. Instead of being annoyed... He was pleased that the man had the uncommon guts to say what he thought, whether or not he was right. So there you go. Battalion commander, instead of getting all mad that this sergeant says something, he's actually thankful. He answered, okay, Sarge, you'll see me around a lot more in the future. The sergeant saluted sharply, whereupon Stone, this is the new company commander, Stone and the major went on, Stone trying to stammer out an apology for the brash sergeant. Johns cut him off. 
but not before Stone had volunteered the statement that he himself thought the Major got around more than any other battalion commander he'd ever seen. The fact that Stone had not seen many battalion commanders did not escape Johns, who smiled to himself as the company commander lapsed into an embarrassed silence. (laughs) On the way back to battalion, he reviewed his own approach to the problem of leadership. He knew that he must prove himself, especially his courage, to every man in the outfit if he expected to get the maximum from them. He felt that he had done so fairly effectively as far as C Company was concerned because he stayed with them that night for the counterattack that had threatened their left flank. Also, his personal intelligence service told him that A Company had approved the little battle he and Grimsel and Martin had had with the machine gun that had killed Jimmy and Sadler. So he's got his own, notice that his personal intelligence service? That means he's got, I've talked about this before, where you got your own guys that are telling you what's going on. So Mm -hmm. his own little guys had told him that A Company, they respected him, they knew he was gonna get after it. Back to the book, but it was apparent that this was going to be a company by company proposition. Baker Company didn't seem to be impressed. He'd have to do something about that. Now, this is just another thing about leadership. There, he's on a field phone, and again, I talked about how they put these wires in, and he's on a field phone, and he gets done making something happen on the field phone and puts down the phone on the table. The phone rang before anyone could say anything. John's picked it up, barking, Red Six. That's his call sign. The operator's voice came through clearly. Are you finished? Yes, I am. He slammed it back on the table. Weddle shook his head. You forgot to ring off, Major. Sergeant Wilson gives the operators hell if they don't make sure the lines are clear. Sergeant Wilson was the acting communications officer. The original man had been killed and Wilson was doing a fine job. He'd been in for a commission for quite a while. Johns picked up the phone and twisted the crank on the leather case. The operator answered instantly. Yes, sir. What's your name, operator? Private Henderson, sir. The voice was a little uncertain. Okay, Private Henderson. You keep doing your job the way you're supposed to. Don't mind me if I snap at you once in a while. I'm sorry. He finished. He started to lay the phone down, smiled, picked it up, and added, finished. So, again, you can see he's a guy that doesn't get all crazy when, when, you know, when people come to him and say, hey, you're supposed to sign off the line. I got to keep these lines open. You're not signing off the line. Are you done? You see egomaniac leaders do that. Get crazy on stupid stuff. They're not following their own rules. Now talking about this network, uh, talking about these communications, here we go back to the book. This this network of communications enabled three men to keep accurate minute-by-minute track of all that was going over on the entire front covered by nearly 600 men. From this one spot, they could direct the lives of all those men actors in the most thrilling and awful drama of all time. So the way that they're doing this, and I, I should have explained this earlier, is you have the, the battalion commander and he has a small staff of people that stay with him most of the time. His operations officer, his communications officer, his intelligence officer. And what they do is when they get to certain positions, they find a command post, a CP. And when they're in the field, what they do is they dig a big giant foxhole and they make it as good as they can. They put logs over the top of it, they put dirt on top of that or sandbags or something, so they're pretty, they're trying to get pretty secure in there from overhead 
artillery attacks. Mm-hmm. And then they run wires out to set up communications with all these uh, all the company commanders who have their own little command posts. And obviously this thing isn't permanent because it has to be mobile because tomorrow night, the next night, we might move another 1,000 yards or 500 yards and then that, that foxhole that we'd r- dug isn't doing us any good anymore. Mm. But from this little command post that they set up, they're, they're running this whole show. Now he talks about his decision making here. Back to the book. If he made a wrong decision, he could cause men to lose their lives needlessly. Or if he was clever or lucky, he might, by moving a single squad or platoon or calling for fire support, defeat the enemy and gain additional glory for the unit, all without moving from his communications when in a defensive position such as this. Then he's talking here about like some of that drama that happens. Back to the book, a single rifle shot could mean the death of a company commander, or it could mean nothing. A mortar round might wipe out an outpost and lay a company open to a surprise attack, or it might only kick up a little dust and scar a few trees. A volley of artillery fire could come through the roof over their heads, or it could burst harmlessly in the fields outside. A burst of fire from the orchard could mean another pig, because they had killed some pigs that they thought were enemy, or a full-scale German attack. Each sound built up a certain amount of suspense to greater or lesser degree. The ring of the phone itself built the tension higher and higher until the first words that came in would perhaps screw it even tighter or dispel it entirely. So that's the life that they're living and just high pressure all the time but you know you hear a massive explosion and this is the same thing i think leif was talking about on the podcast you know you hear an explosion you have no idea what it is you don't know if it's friendly you don't know if it's a tank round being fired you don't know if it's an ied going off you don't know if it's a a mortar round impact you can't maybe maybe these guys got to a point where they could tell the difference but Mm -hmm. i'll tell you what you get into urban combat and there's the sound is refracting off all the buildings it's hard to tell where it came from, and it's definitely hard to tell what it is. And by the way, the artillery rounds that hit are what are being used as IEDs. Mm-hmm. So you don't know what it is. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. But it was weird too. In in, in Ramadi, there was constant gunfire. Like you, you when you went outside, you just hear. Yeah. It was it was always out there, you know. Even if it was, uh, even if it was on the other side of the city. I mean, you you can, yeah. maybe not the other side of the city, but if it was in downtown Ramadi and we were back at our base, you know, we'd go up on the rooftop of my building and sit there, and you could just tracers all night. You know, yeah. the Marines down in the government center were getting attacked for the fourteenth night in a row. Yeah. You know, the outposts, the the army soldiers or Camp Corregidor was getting mortared. I mean, it was just constantly happening. So what was it where you, if it's closer, that's when it's the concern? Or I well, guess yeah, it's definitely. just context in general, right? No, just yeah, this, the overall context for us, for me, it was like, okay, you know, well, you just you just knew that there was constant fighting yeah, going on. Constant fighting zone. was going on. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, obviously, if it was closer, then the, the louder it is and the closer it is, the more of a concern it becomes, yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> now he talks about, Again, this is a subject we hear about all the time. Uh, the German mortars and gunners must have registered too because they had the exact range of every foot of hedgerow held by the battalion. 
On the 10th of July, they covered almost every foot of the hedgerow. That sort of gunnery was rough on the men. They never knew when the first round would fall, but once it had splattered with its flat crash, they all knew that six or maybe a dozen more were coming, each one a little further up or down the hedgerow. When you heard that first one, you pulled the bottom of your foxhole right up to your belly and prayed. When you heard the second one, you knew whether or not they were coming your way. If they were coming towards you, it got right rough. Each round was a little closer, and they were so damn deliberate about it that the waiting was worth, worse than the crash of the shell itself. You lay there and counted the seconds between the shells until you knew that the next one was yours. The 20 seconds or so was the longest one in the world because you never knew if you were safe until the shell hit. It could hit anywhere outside your hole, even a matter of inches, and you were okay. If it hit in the hole with you, you'd never know it, of course. Actually, only a few shells ever made direct hits on foxholes, but some did, and nearly every man had seen a foxhole that had been hit. There was always the little tail fin section left on the surface, And after the litter bearers had come and gone, there was only a pool of dark muck to show that somebody had been in the hole. It happened twice that day. So this one, you can, I don't know if you quite followed what's happening. These guys are in a hedgerow. So they're in a linear position, Mm -hmm. right? And the way you work mortars is you make small adjustments on them. And and the way that you fire at targets when you don't know what the distance is, you, you put the first one's going to be long, yeah. and then you you adjust a lot shorter, so then you come back, and it's called bracketing. So yeah. you, you, know, you might come back five clicks, and then that was, now you're, now you're hit in front of the target. Now you go back, now you go forward again four clicks, it hits a little behind the target, now you come back three, two, one, and then boom, you hit your target. So on the mortar thing... There's like an actual tool that kind of well, there's the, yeah, you're adjusting the elevation. Yeah, of, yeah. So it's yes, like there's like yes, a little it's going dial up and down, thing. a little dial. It's going up and down to to fire at what yeah. angle you want to fire yeah, at. Yeah. So what you do is when you shoot a mortar, you you the first one you go long, mm. the second one you estimate short, and then you basically can split the difference between those two, right. and you're going to be pretty close. Yeah. And like you work with a a legit. Mortar team, yeah. and the third round is going to be pretty you know damn stuff. spot on. Yeah, but what he's saying here is the Germans—they already knew the exact settings for where to put. Oh, uh, yeah. like oh, we see movement at this part of the hedgerow. They don't need to take. They they just go to their pre-designated yeah. settings. Yes. they can put a round right on that. So they kind of figured it out beforehand. Yeah, or they something. figured it out beforehand. They know the exact because what you what you have to you know the distance. Yeah, you know the distance that the mortar shoots at a certain elevation. But what they don't know is. If you're trying to shoot at something that you don't know exactly where it is, well, then you have to estimate the distance, which is a little bit challenging to do. Now, a good sniper or a good mortarman are going to be pretty close. You know, snipers know that, hey, this thing, they get it down to really, you know, how many meters it is. And same thing with a good mortarman. But even that, you know, when you're talking about a far distance of 800,000 meters, you might be off by 50 meters. And that's, you know, being off by 50 meters with a mortar is a big distance. It's not going to kill the target that you're trying to hit. 
but with these Germans at this point they already have everything measured and dialed they have a range card is what we call it a range card means like I know exactly I'm when you set up in a position you get out your range finder and you find out what the range and distance of everything that you're looking at so you know exactly how far it is you can dial in your scope boom oh I see somebody over at that corner of that building that's 832 meters boom crack remember that game battleship remember that I do remember that the old school yeah like you can't see it, but you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're Kinda trying like to figure that out what it is. a little bit. It is your your basically your first round is going to be a little bit. If you hit something, then you gotta you're like, oh, adjust. Close. Yeah. So what the Germans, like I said, the Germans had these things pre-registered, and then what they would do is they would just drop. They would just hit the whole hedgerow. They'd yeah. go right down the line, and these guys knew that once the first round goes, it's either going to be moving away from me on the hedgerow. Or toward me. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, can you imagine the the damn pressure <laughs> when you're sitting there? That first round goes, and now the next round, where's it gonna be further away from me? Meaning the Germans are gonna di- are dialing away from me, right? Or are they dialing towards me? Yeah. And then how many rounds are they gonna go? Yeah. Because if they do enough rounds, yeah. you're you're gonna be all right. Yeah, that's battleship. Or, 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 or you're not. They're right there. The game. That's exactly what the. How and right. what's interesting is those, like you said, if the if the mortar hits outside of your foxhole by an inch. Mm-hmm. You're probably gonna be okay because the mortar blast goes up and out when it hits mm. the ground If it hits in your foxhole, you're dead yeah. And so there's this this kind of randomness that you're dealing with All right Going back to the book a little after this uh, after 1700 General Gearhart came striding through the trees behind the company post hole He came on serious business that of giving orders for an attack. If he carried them by himself, they were important. Gentlemen, he said, with the edge to his voice that was impressive, the division attacks tomorrow at 0600, all along the line. This is the drive for St. Lowe. There were few details. The battalions would attack, as the general had said, at 0600. The first battalion would advance in a southwesterly direction with the village of Bellefontaine as its initial objective. That was about all there was to it, except for the usual information concerning artillery support, supplies, location of regimental command post, and that sort of thing. So pretty pretty broad orders. Like, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to attack tomorrow at 0600. The mission is to get St. Lowe. Mm. Back to the book. By the time the order got down to the platoon leaders and their part, their part was pretty simple. All they, in turn, had to say was, all right, gang, let's take the next hedgerow. When the company commanders had gone, the staff discussed the plan of attack. The question bothering Johns most of all was where to put the advanced command post group. He wanted to hold casualties to the barest minimum, yet he wanted to be as far forward as possible. So he's talking about where should he actually position himself and his small team of battalion staff where should they position themselves? It's funny too because when we talk about battalion staff, you know, you talk about, I don't know, a battalion staff can be pretty big when you're in a big battalion, but mm. this is not a big group. Mm. This is a small group, especially because they've taken so many casualties. Back to the book, there were a number of good reasons for this. In the first place, keeping the command group close to the companies made a lot of difference in communications, particularly in this close wooded country. A clump of heavy trees or a high hedgerow could spell the margin between having contact and not having it. That was of supreme importance. Second, if you had, and this is why I always talk about keeping a plan simple, 
Because when you start getting split up from people and you can't maintain communications with them, the difference between not having communication and having communications is is night and day. It's disaster and success. It's victory and defeat. Mm. Back to the book. Second, if he had to move a bog, if he had to move to a bog down company or to any trouble spot, he wanted to have the shortest possible distance to go. So. He wants to be close enough to have good communications. He also wants to be close enough that if something's going wrong, he can get there mm. and, and make things happen. Third, the group couldn't afford to stay far behind in any event because they fully expected the German paratroopers to close in around them as soon as they started to advance. If the command post group were too far from the rifle companies, it would have a good chance of getting cut off and destroyed or captured. Then there was always the consideration that the men liked to know that the old man was not far behind and to see him once in a while when the stuff was flying around. So these are things he's considering. They're getting ready. You know, it's now uh, getting closer to the attack. Back to the book. The staff was uneasy. They didn't want to turn in. They couldn't say why. There had been other nights like this. They all sensed that everyone shared their own nameless fears. Now they start their movement suddenly a terrific firing broke out every German cannon mortar rifle and machine gun that had fired around that day cut loose simultaneously the sound of mortars coughing on the German side blended with the scream of incoming shells Grimsel and Hoffman slid down the steps of the hole before the first round hit the phone rang major Johns grabbed it red six Charlie Sixer we're catching hell down here with mortars and artillery I think the I think there's enemy infantry coming in under the fire. So the idea is cover and move. You you do this as an infantry platoon or company or battalion. You put suppressive fire. So you start launching mortars mm. at your enemy. Mm. And then while they're all taking cover, you advance. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he's talking about. He says, I think there's enemy infantry coming in under the fire. Stone broke in. The operator having wisely sensed a crisis and cut him into the circuit. So the other company commander now tunes in. Same here, Major. Only I know there's infantry coming in. They're already in the road with us. So there's about to get some. His voice and manner were normally extremely quiet and easygoing. Now his tone was strident with urgency. Had it been anyone but Julian Stowen, the Major might have thought it showed near panic. Okay to the both of you, he answered as calmly as he could. Stuff's coming in here too. Fight him and keep me informed. Major Johns doesn't get excited about stuff very often. He says, "Oh, you're getting attacked. Cool. Fight him. Keep me informed." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that that's that's how you eat. Yeah. Now, at some point all the wires that I talked about that were so important for communication. Mm-hmm. The crowd back at the aid station, they had a ca- they captured a guy, cried Weddle suddenly. He must have been part of the patrol that came through and cut all our wires. Hell, there haven't been enough shells to failing, falling to cut them all. The smart bastards, they even knew when we checked radios as well. So these guys set a small group of Germans, went through the lines, probably right after a radio check mm-hmm. caught all the wires yeah uh, that's that's how you kick off a, a an attack yeah. right you screw up their communications 
now at this point they are this is turning bad real bad and and this is again there's so much great information in here and so such good documentation of the way this combat takes place mm-hmm. but at, suffice it to say at this point I'm skipping forward they are getting really crushed they got mass casualties they are they're when they advance so imagine this remember I talked about the Germans know exactly where their mortars are gonna hit mm. well the Americans will storm forward and fight hard and get to another hedgerow mm-hmm. when they get to this new hedgerow where the Germans were where they just beat the Germans out of there the Germans have that hedgerow dialed as well <laughs> so so now oh, yeah, yeah. as soon as they get position yeah they start getting immediate effective fire from mortar so this yeah. is a total nightmare and that's what's happening and at this point they're completely bogged down and this might be you don't get to hear a story like this very often so the regimental executive Colonel Smith lieutenant Colonel Smith shows up so above the chain of command of the battalion is the regiment Mm -hmm. and the the senior person in the regiment is the colonel the regimental commander and this is his executive the person one down from the regimental commander is this guy lieutenant lieutenant colonel smith and he shows up and here's what he says what's the matter johns why aren't you getting anywhere smith gasped and this he's gasped because he's running into this position Mm -hmm. the major pointed to the bloody trail to the dead men to the shells that were savaging the trees and finally in the direction of the nearby front from which came the plodding sound of mortar fire his eyes were lacking their usual snap and he answered dully they're too tough Smith blinked several times he was obviously trying to think of something to say something that would inspire this listless battalion commander to new effort well he finally brought out you got to get going right away regiment has got to move you just got to get going Johns shook his head he wasn't having any not today was all he would say so we're talking mentally defeated at this point mm-hmm. and even the the regimental commander coming in or the regimental executive commander coming in telling him hey you got to move you just got to go which is that that encouragement this reminds me of of in jiu-jitsu tournaments you ever seen a coach saying like you got to get on top yeah you got to do something yeah. got to get out of there yeah. yeah that doesn't help me yeah so that's what he's saying hey you you just got to go mm-hmm. I'm getting mortared my guys are getting mowed down I'm not I can't do it so back to the book then for some reason both men looked up the hedgerow toward the rear Colonel McDaniel the new division chief of staff was striding toward them oblivious of the fire just as he reached the command post a volley of four rounds screamed in the field just beyond the hedgerow the concussion tumbled him into the hole with the major and Smith but McDaniel did not lose his natural dignity and he was smiling as he said hello Johns Smith how are we doing now we got a leader coming in that's very calm and very cool and just got blasted into their hole by the way (laughs) yeah and he looks up smiles and says how are we doing Johns made an effort to perk up a bit, but his voice lacked conviction or force as he told McDaniel all about the situation. The chief of staff surveyed the scene, weighing it all very carefully before he answered. When he did, his tone was serious, and he was not smiling. 
Johns, when you were on maneuvers in Louisiana or at VMI, and while you were studying at Leavenworth, you saw situations where units had to be sacrificed knowingly in order to get a job done, didn't you? The battalion commander nodded. When you saw those things, you probably never thought very much about them, just accepted them as a matter of course in war, didn't you? The major nodded again. You never stopped to think, probably, that there might come a time when you and your unit would be the one that had to be sacrificed to enable the parent unit to accomplish its mission. The major's eyes were opening wider as he shook his head. Well, I don't know for sure, but maybe this is that time. I do know that this is the highest ground on the core front and the key to the entire defense of St. Lowe. Corps expects, expects us to break it, and we think you are the man to do the job at whatever cost. Now don't let us down. Without another word, he got to his feet and walked back the way he had come. The regimental executive tagged after him. Johns watched them go. Suddenly he remembered that the general, what the general had said to him the day before. I'm counting on you. He turned to Weddle, who had watched this little drama with detached interest. Leroy, the major said as he squared his shoulders and pointed to the sinking sun. Take a damn good look at that sun, old boy, because it's probably the last time any of us will ever see it. Let's go. Johns never knew later just what he did the rest of that afternoon and early evening. He remembered moving around the command post forward again, and he knew that he had needled the company commanders unmercifully, threatening them with relief of their commands, begging, pleading, anything he could think of that would work with that individual at that moment. He found that there was a comparatively weak spot in the German lines opposite Baker again. He badgered Martin into persuading the artillery to give him all the fire that he could hit that spot at one time. That meant a lot of guns. When they all fired three rounds as fast as the gunners could load them, a hundred yards of German-held hedgerow went up in flame and smoke and dust. Again, most of Baker companies streamed across the field and into the gap blasted by the artillery. That took the heart out of the paratroopers, and the paratroopers he's talking about are German paratroopers, who began to fall back all along the line. It was no route. The Germans retired from their flanking threat Baker posed, having gained a place in their main line. But they fell back slowly, fighting every foot of the way. The tenacious paratroopers slowed the the weakened battalion again, but they could not stop it entirely. The company commanders and the platoon leaders together with the battalion CEO had thrown off their apathy, taken a second wind, and were not to be denied. At dark, thanks to the inspired leadership that had been provided in a few short minutes by Colonel McDaniel, the German line was broken beyond repair. The battered American battalion had made 500 bloody yards. As dusk faded into darkness, the firing began to diminish, only to flare briefly again on the left. Then it died away into silence. Kenny called in Kenny called in to say there had been a light counterattack on the left flank. He had easily kicked it off. The major did not ask for permission to halt the advance. He gave orders to dig in for the night after he was sure the companies had close contact on their flanks. So there you go. 
that that's that's just an amazing account of not only of leadership but of what leadership was capable of Mm. I mean John's was pretty much done he's literally saying not today Mm. they're too tough and the way that McDaniel convinces him and explains to him that you know those times those times when you were doing exercises and you, you they'd, they'd sacrifice a unit so that they can accomplish the mission mm-hmm. I'm not sure but I think you're that unit right now and we're counting on you to get it done mm-hmm. unbelievable you know that's uh that's one of those things too where that's where you're that's where you know from a leadership perspective you're now you know entering a situation where duty is going to be the most important thing to you and you also know that the mission is the most important thing you've got to you've got to put that at the top of your priorities and you know you're going to sacrifice guys and it's going to be a nightmare but the alternative the alternative is you're not going to win mm. you're going you're not going to win that's the alternative is that your team is not going to be able to achieve this and and you know at this point in the war this war was not settled yet mm. <laughs> by any stretch this war was not settled and so to give up ground and start to, to let the Germans reorganize and let them start to gain high ground, which is what they were fighting for here, mm-hmm. that's not just going to affect your men. It's going to affect everybody. everybody yeah. And so I've said this on the podcast before. The definition of a team is when the members of the team think the team is more important than themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see right here. They realize, John's realize realizes that look we're gonna be and, and the title of the book is clay pigeons you know what a clay pigeon is right yes sir. it's what you throw up in the air and shoot, shoot. at and yeah. it's just it's a sacrificial piece of clay yeah. and that's why the name of the book is the clay pigeons of st. Lowe, because that's in many cases the situation that they're in yeah. so this is this is different than when Napoleon says hey if you get told to do something and it's not smart and you do it anyways you're culpable John's he can't say look no this isn't smart he knows it's the right thing to do he that's that's the big difference that I'm trying to get at here this isn't a guy who's saying look hey we're gonna charge this machine gun nest and I'm gonna lose you know half my platoon but it's not gonna make any big deal and I'm a, I'm a bad leader because I sacrificed my platoon for a meaningless machine gun nest. Mm-hmm. This is a guy that knows that this objective is important, knows that this high ground is needed, knows that the, the success of this, not just this mission, but the success of this whole, this whole uh, assault on France and thereby Germany is riding on what they're doing. Now you could break it down and say, well, you know, they, they could hold back and they could wait. Well, what happens when you hold back and wait? Do the Germans have more reinforcements that they're sending their way? You know, what's what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And so he is calculated in his mind. You know what? We need to do this. 
for the good of everyone we need to do this at one point now fast forwarding past some more of that fighting they they do a good job of kind of of they, they've, they've knocked out some of the through through some fierce fighting they've knocked out and they've moved forward and they've holed up and now they start advancing again and here we go back to the book one one well-placed stubborn hostile machine gun stopped that flank attack cold so they're attacking and they get stopped by one well-placed machine gun the German gunner got off got half of the small squad that tried to rush him through the smoke and the attackers had to withdraw dragging their wounded with them mortars and artillery left the German undamaged rifle grenades couldn't quite hit the narrow slit through which he was firing two grenadiers trying to take extra careful aim had also been hit by concealed German snipers when the major arrived it looked as though progress had stopped using the battalion radio to the rear command post and the artillery phone from there he adjusted 18 successive rounds from one gun of the 110th field artillery battalion in a vain attempt to sharpshoot the machine gun out of existence but he couldn't hit it and after each round burst on or near the hedgerow the enemy would reply with a derisive burst there was only one answer a tank and miraculously a tank appeared so that's what I'm talking about he's he tries with there's one machine gun that's holding up this situation he gets on the radio and cars artillery artillery which is similar to mortars they're they're bigger and more powerful but it's the same thing it's indirect fire you're putting rounds far up in the air and then through a big arc that's going thousands and thousands of feet in some cases into the air and then coming basically straight down on a target mm-hmm. and it's when I say it's hard to hit a target he's fires 18 rounds to try and hit this machine gun bunkered in machine gun can't stop it can't help it so he needs a tank and then miraculously and and uh, if you don't know anything about my incredible affection for tanks and for tankers because of what they were able to do in the Battle of Ramadi to not only for themselves but to support and save my guys time and time again I'm a big fan of tanks. In fact, I love tanks and tankers. That's straight up. Yeah. That's the way it is. And this is why. This is why right here. Back to the book. One steel monster monster lumbered up behind Johns, who yelled instructions to the tank commander. The gunner watched carefully while an infantry squad leader fired a clip of tracer bullets at the slit that hid the machine gun and then swung his short-barreled little 75 into line. It crashed once and almost simultaneously with the muzzle blast came the crack of white phosphorus shell as it hit the slit the smoke blossomed up from behind a hedgerow indicating a direct hit with that a single paratrooper came running toward them a few moments later everything on the front cut loose the enemy and the company charged and another hundred yards of French real estate had changed hands And then the major, (laughs) the major wished every machine gunner in his outfit could have seen that position as an illustration of what skill, tenacity, and guts could do to build and defend one machine gun position. So, machine gunners, tanks. Yeah. 
it's incredible what a machine gun. I mean, you, you, know, you know what a machine gun is, right? I mean, machine guns, sure. I mean, a, a, a normal, like a Mark 48 machine gun or the old M60, Roger Hayden talk about carrying the 60, yes. right? And and our boys, the last deployment, my last deployment to Ramadi, guys are carrying Mark 48s or Mark 46s, which is a smaller round, a 5.56 five, round. M60, that's what Rambo had, right? That is, in the fact, one hand. yes, yes. And Commando, by the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, I'll, I'll take your word John for John Matrix, to be exact. That was, that was his name. Oh, okay. The M60? Sure. The belt-fed yeah. machine gun? Hell yeah. They're, they're not that big of a weapon. I mean, it's big, and believe me, when you're carrying 800, 2,000 rounds, it's big enough. Sure. But if you think about a whole, you know, a battalion worth of guys are getting stopped by a guy in a machine gun. Yeah. In a good guy, position. Yeah. Now, yeah. he had snipers, snipers covering him. Oh. Two snipers apparently were covering him, but that's, that's, that's not many people. That's why... When you're on the offense, mm-hmm. you need more people yeah. than being in a defensive position. Mm-hmm. You know, a def- when you're in a defend defensive position yeah. and you're allowed to, you have time to set up. Mm-hmm. That's why when you go back to well, when you look at Normandy, when you look at this whole, if you look at World War II as a whole, mm. that both the the Allies and what we did in in Normandy, taking the beaches, and what you did every time in the Pacific. Taking the beaches, you're going against bunkered positions like yeah. this. Yeah, fully. And it's just incredible the tenacity that it takes to make this happen. Yeah, isn't isn't that the whole, in a way, the whole idea behind behind guerrilla warfare, where it's like we're just we're kind of we're is. not fighting, we're not fighting, and then all of a sudden we're fighting, and then it we're is. not fighting. That that is the that is behind guerrilla warfare, but this isn't guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Even without even without sneaking around, right, right. You, gotcha. You're you're yeah. in a uniformed soldier, German, and you go, okay, I'm going to set up a bunkered position on this high ground where I have the enemy channelized in this area, and right. I have good spread on them. And the only weak spots I've got, I'm going to cover them with snipers. Yeah. Three people holding up a battalion, and just think, you know, if you if then once you get that position, we have mortars already dialed in when you get there. That are going to start hitting you, and then the next thing you do is you got to move again. Well, guess what? We got another three, four, five guys in machine gun positions, mutually yeah. supporting each other. That's why this, this, these American Allied fighting forces and the Americans here and the Americans in the Pacific going against hardened, bunkered positions is incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, he's given kind of an overview of war, and and here we go. Thus goes battle. A rush, a pause, some creeping, a few isolated shots here and there, some artillery fire, some mortars, some smoke, more creeping, another pause, dead silence, more firing, a great concentration of fire, followed by a concerted rush. Then the whole process starts all over again. The defender, this is this is good information. The defender will almost always hold out some reserve, even though his front line is being torn to bits. At least he should. He may inflict all the damage on the attacker that he can while giving ground slowly. Then, when he thinks the attacker is weakening, or when the defense has reached a certain piece of ground that the defender has chosen for the purpose, he launches a counterattack with his reserves. The attacker has used much of his strength, his men are tired, probably short of ammunition, and are almost inevitably somewhat disorganized. Then the defender throws fresh troops into a counterattack over ground his men know. 
unless the attackers are very strong they must inevitably suffer often then they are defeated and thrown back or destroyed so there, there you go I mean this happens in mixed martial arts it happens in sports it happens on the battlefield mm. these guys are pushing forward on the attack and you take away you, you chip away at them a little bit you give them ground you give them ground and then when they when they get spread out they're low on ammunition boom then you hit them on a counterattack on ground that you already know mm. back to the book such counterattack tactics have been standard almost as long as there have been organized armies the Germans employed them so regularly that they were never a surprise but the enter- enemy could never muster seem to muster the strength necessary to make their counterattacks stick their efforts often halted in advance as they had the night before but they rarely gained back any ground and were almost always costly to the counterattackers even the best and most proven tactics still require judgment and the force to do the job the Germans rarely had enough of either so there's a little breakdown on what's happening with the Germans. First of all, they're not using good judgment. They're just like standard operating procedure. We're going to counterattack every single time. And when you counterattack, you're taking losses, especially if you're not gaining ground. Hmm. So their standard operating procedure, we're going to counterattack, and they're not gaining ground. And so what are they doing? They're losing guys. And the more guys you lose, the less guys you have to counterattack with the next time. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> they had a they had a group here that was working in the battalion they were called commandos and it was just like a little elite group that they were using they would guard the command post but then they would also when something was going down they'd get out there and get after it super mm. aggressive but they were running so low on people that they needed to put the commandos team back out into the companies the regular companies so mm. there had been a little commando unit a little special unit within the battalion and then he had to take those guys and put them back out with the with the regular companies. Now, here we go, back to the book. In the middle of the afternoon, the CO moved up close behind A Company to watch their contingent of former battalion commandos go into the line. Sergeant Turner, who had made it who had been in charge of the platoon, of the commando platoon, was with them. Seeing the major, he fell behind long enough to say, Sir, we're going in there to help our buddies from old A Company lick the hell out of those bastards. But when we get through this, I'd sure like to come back and get another bunch of commandos for the battalion. His cool voice ended on a rising note. All right, Sergeant, you get us into St. Lowe, and I'll promise you you get another platoon of your Hellraisers just as soon as we can spare them from the companies. Johns returned to the sergeant's John's returned the sergeant salutes and watched the man as he ran to catch up with the others. An hour later, a weasel, which is a small purpose tracked vehicle flying a red cross flag, clattered out of the woods carrying a load of wounded on litters. The battalion commander, who was passing the spot, stopped when he saw the wounded. The little commando sergeant lay on the litter on the near side. Seeing the major, he yelled for the driver to stop. Johns went over to him, and the boy, both his legs wrapped in dirty, bloody bandages, grabbed his commander's shirt and pulled himself up on the litter. He was crying openly and unashamedly as he burst out with a flood of invective. They got all my boys, major. We didn't get off the LD, which is the line of departure. I let you down, Major. I let you down. He stopped and sobbed bitterly before he could go on. 
Major Johns could feel his own throat constricting as he held the tightly gripping hands that shook him again and again as the sergeant poured out his grief and rage and disappointment. We had to get that gun. Damn the dirty bastards. God damn. God damn. I let him get me with a fucking machine gun and they got all my boys too. God damn. He sobbed uncontrollably while the weasel driver began to let his clutch take hold. But I'll be back, Major, sir. I'll be back. I'll be back. Sure, boy. And I'll have your old job for you anytime. You just take it easy and get those legs fixed. The Major was walking slowly beside the litter, trying to gently disengage the grip on his shirt. The sergeant let go and fell back on the litter, exhausted. Johns looked up at the aid man, who slowly shook his head. The sergeant would not be back. Now, they are finally pushing into St. Lowe, and, and they have to go down this or the, the direction of attack that they're taking is down this down this single road that heads into St. Lowe and the Germans have it dialed they have it dialed with range you know with artillery ready to hit it and here we go and they have hit it they're starting to hit it with big rounds back to the book Johns noted that the German fire was coming in slowly there couldn't have been more than two or three guns firing as they were all big ones they didn't fire rapidly that was a break but just one of those big shells in the wrong place as the next one began to howl the men t- t- began to look for deeper spots in the ditches Johns yelled keep going damn it it's not here yet the men kept going forward for several more seconds running hard now the shell was nearly on the ground before the major yelled again down Although the men hit the ditches, John was too excited to remember he was in the middle of the road. He went down on one knee. The shell burst a hundred yards ahead. Again, nobody was hit. The instant it burst, the major was up yelling, Let's go! Running as he yelled. His men got up and ran too. Hoffman and Grismel, or Grimsel, catching the idea, moved further back down the line of men to relay commands and call signals on the shells. When the next one hit, all three officers did the same. None of them got off the road. Here and there, non-coms without orders began to fill in the gaps, staying on the road themselves. By the time the third shell hit, the whole column was working as smoothly as if it had been on a parade ground drill. And they were losing no time. They kept going. A few men were hit, but not many. Oddly oddly enough, not an officer or non-com was knocked out of the middle of the road, though each leader only went down on one knee. One shell burst not 25 yards ahead of the major, but it hit just around a small bend in the road and he was sheltered by the bank. He ran forward through the smoke and dust, nearly falling over a man who was rolling crazily half in and half out of the ditch. Johns grabbed him by the arm to help him to his feet, crying, come on boy, let's go. The man tried to get up but stumbled awkwardly forward. Only then did Johns look down and see that the soldier had no feet. He was trying valiantly to stand on the stumps of his two legs where his feet had been sliced cleanly off just at the ankles. Johns laid him back 
gently into the ditch and changed his tone. Maybe you better take it easy a while, son. You stay here until one of your buddies gets here. They'll be along in a minute. The man himself was an aid man and not another was in sight, but the battalion commander had no time for one man. So after a quick look to see that the stumps were not bleeding profusely, he patted the man on the back saying, See you later, bud. Then he ran to catch up to his place in the column. A little further down the road, after another burst, he saw another man lying in the ditch, not making any move to get up and go, although he didn't seem to be hurt. John stopped, grabbed him by the arm, and yelled again, Come on, let's get going. Looking blankly up at him, the soldier pushed a camera forward, saying plaintively, I'm a cameraman. This rocked the major for a moment. Then he said, Well, you can't take any pictures in that ditch. Get going. So, again, you see leadership in action. Mm-hmm. You see him having to ex- actually lead and set the example, and his other, the company commanders, and eventually the, the senior enlisted guys all follow his lead of what he's doing. We got time to run. We got a minute or whatever it is, 30 seconds. We're going to get up. We're going to run as hard as we can. When we, when we know we're going to get hit with a shell, we're going to get down and take cover. Mm-hmm. Pure leadership. Mm. Now, once they get kind of into St. Lowe, there's a colonel shows up, starts getting told what to do. Back to the book. The colonel was giving orders again. I want you to clear this town as quickly as you can. There aren't many Germans in it, but there are a few, and I want it all clear. Your battalion is the only infantry we have with the task force. As you are the ranking officer, you will be in command of all the troops in town. He looked closely at the major, who nodded, trying to contain the elation he felt, knowing that he would have command on the ground of what would undoubtedly be a historical action. The colonel thrust a map at him. Here's a large-scale map of the town itself. Now get going. Major Johns turned to look for Wendell, Weddell, and Gremsel. His two staff officers turned company commanders. Both were almost at his elbow. He drew them to one side and divided the town between them. So now they're kind of on the outskirts of St. Lowe and they're starting to clear the town. And we have, so the companies go out and start clearing the town. And they've set up a little makeshift command post for, for Major Johns. And, and he's standing there with, he's got, he's got a bunch of new guys with him too. Mm. He's got all these replacements. Because remember, an hour and a half ago when I said hey these guys have already had 300 replacements well that has kept up the whole time mm. they're getting all these replacements so at this point this is an interesting leadership story here he's got some new guys that show up and there's he's standing in his new command post and these new guys he sees like a position that needs to be taken to make sure that you know we we have some security around the command post and so here we go he motioned to the PFC and three other men standing nearby. They came forward, rifles ready. So these are three new guys. Just replacements, just showed up. Mm. And again, the probably the, the most fire they've seen was running into the town of St. Lowe, avoiding big, giant howitzer shells that are hitting them. Mm. Back to the book. See that alley there, said John's pointing? I want you to take these three men and go down to the end of it. Looks like about 100 yards, where you will set up an outpost. Lieutenant Lickery will come around later to see how you're doing. The PFC squinted down the alley, nodded a a trifle uncertainly and started toward it. The others followed, but the major was too preoccupied to note that there had been no briefing 
and no assignment of positions or duties. They just trooped off down the alley together like a bunch of men going to the post exchange. Two minutes after they left, the sound of German machine gun fire came from the direction of the narrow passageway. John's turned to look. Out of the alley pelted the four men straight toward him. The private first class panted, Sir, there's a machine gun down there. The battalion commander didn't know whether to be amused or angry. There was no telling what the new men were apt to do if they didn't have leadership of an experienced or well-trained non-com or officer. He decided to be gentle. Yes, I heard it. Now, tell you what to do. You take these three men again, assign one to take a place where he can shoot at the gun or where you think the gun is, then take the other two and see if you can't come around behind it and get it for me. So, little cover and move. It's real simple. Little mm-hmm. cover and move. You, you get where you can shoot the gun. Have that guy get where you can shoot the gun. And then you guys maneuver behind it. Cover and move. Beautiful. The PFC took that in. Nodded somewhat less uncertainly. Motioned to the men to follow him and started purposefully back down the alley. In not more than five minutes, there came in rapid succession the sound of the machine gun, a few rifle shots, two grenades, and running feet. Johns had moved across the street looking for the best place for a temporary command post. He turned toward the mouth of the alley wondering what would come out this time. Two Germans showed first, running toward him at full speed. Before the Major could bring his submachine gun up, he saw the PFC and one other man prodding the Germans from behind with bayonets. They spotted him and poked the prisoner in his direction. They stopped in front of him before he noticed the MG-34 the PFC was dragging behind him, so they actually had the German machine gun. The man dropped the gun in front of him saying, here's the gun you wanted, Major, but this is all that's left of the crew. We had to kill two of them, sir. Major Johns gulped, nodded, and motioned to Gay, who was another one of the guys, to come to get the prisoners. The private first class and his helpers jogged back toward their new outpost. The major looked after them, wondering just what sort of training or indoctrination they must have had, first to run away from an enemy without trying to fight back, and then to apologize for having killed two. He looked down at the German, at the battered German machine gun, kicked it idly, and reminded himself to be more careful in issuing orders to new men. They were apt to take things a bit on the literal side. He was sure that the PFC had actually thought that the CO himself had a personal desire for the machine gun they had knocked out, and that he would have gone to any ends to retrieve the gun itself in order to bring it back just because the Major had added that for me when he ordered them to get the gun. Yeah, that's like a common thing to kind of add, right? Like, you know how... Back when I used to work at the nightclub, mm-hmm. you'd hear that all the time. Like, you know, especially when you're managing big crowds. So you say, "Hey, can you, you know, can you slide over on the side here for me?" And they'd always add the "for me." Oh yeah. And I always thought like that's kind of a strange <laughs> thing to add. I mean, it's so common. So, but when you really think about it, it's like that kind of a strange thing to add. But I think it like adds like this personal touch. Well, it does. Like, you know, a little too personal. Yeah. For Major Jones on that one. <laughs> Apparently. All right. Now he's in the command post. Weddle, who's one of the company commanders, these guys are out clearing the city, and he hears some commotion, comes back into one of the rooms, and Weddle's in there with one of the other officers, or one of the other, uh, yeah, officers there working on him. 
Back to the book. Brooks, sobbing, was carefully cutting away the officer's field jacket and shirt, exposing a wide, deep gash just below the shoulder. John's stomach turned over quickly when he saw the wound. The bone was shattered with sharp, splintered ends sticking through the bloody, pulpy mass of torn flesh. That's, this is Weddle he's talking about. Weddle was damn near right. They had almost blowed his arm plumb off. The S3 moaned, closed his eyes as he leaned back to let Brooks do what he could with the nasty wound. But he pulled himself together in a moment or two and opened his eyes to look at the CO. So here he is. Weddle's just in agony, but he gets gets a grip. Then he looks at the CO, squeezes his eyes together hard, then looks at the CO and says, I was just coming back to tell you, he ground out between clenched teeth, that we have our side of the town all clear with the men out on the edge when the artillery caught me in the middle of the street. He flinched, his face twisted in pain when the aid man who had taken over from Brooks inadvertently twisted his arm as he sprinkled sulfur powder into the wound. Then he went on, Chadwick is back. Didn't know it until I saw him. Came up just came just before we pulled out out of the little road back up the hill. You can put him in command. He's good. He was gasping at the words now. Major, can you get me out of here? I don't want to lose this arm. Sure, boy. We'll get you out. Just try to relax now. Don't worry about it. Take it easy and we'll have you back to where they can fix it up in no time. Weddle leaned heavily on Brooks, who was still sobbing from the shock of seeing his captain so badly wounded. Weddle and Brooks had been together a long time, and Major knew the sergeant would be no good around the command post for a while, so he motioned him to go along and look after the wounded S3. So again, you know, Major Johns realizes that somebody's at their capacity for handling the horrors of war and says, hey, you take this guy back to the aid station. Now there's a German counterattack. So they're in St. Louis, they got things decently handled, but all of a sudden they start seeing, and there's a guy in the field named Barnes, and he's starting to report back, hey, they're they're forming up a big counterattack. Mm-hmm. And also they're field phones are been they lost wires so they don't have good communications they see this thing forming up they're going to be overwhelmed they're they're really undermanned st louis is a pretty big city it's all kind of destroyed but it's still too big for the amount of people that they have and so they're really scared that there's going to be a big counterattack and the germans are going to take the city back so they finally get through they don't even know who they're talking to they're just trying to get through to somebody that can pass word to get the artillery to start dropping bombs and Henderson is one of the guys on the on the radio and he says damn it man This is Lagoon Red in st. Lowe and we've needed artillery's worse than ever Needed anything in all our lives and we need it right now all our lines are rear All our lines to the rear are out and our wire people spliced one and got you now quit asking damn fool questions And tell me if you can shoot for us in st. Lowe So this is going back and forth they start dropping bombs and all of a sudden they start adjusting the the bombing closer and closer to them to their own lines Back to the book, Angel Fire Direction Center was questioning the adjustment. The correction would bring the shells inside the no-fire line, maybe on friendly troops. Hell yes, we got does on the edge of town. Who do you think wants this stuff anyways? The artillery man was frantic, afraid of the safety rules the big guns would make them stop them just when they needed them most. Please, sir, he pleaded, just put it out there. The infantry battalion commander is standing right beside me, praying for more of it. 
The last volley was right in there, but the Germans are still coming. They stand, they, they get him to drop more bombs and Barnes, the guys out in the field, calls back in again. That was marvelous. Do it again some more. And then the guys transfer in that repeat range. Fire for effect. Give us all you have and give it quick. You're breaking up the attack and you're all we have. And that's enough. That's that they they bomb the the Jesus out of the Germans, and that pretty much breaks the attack. And again, I'm summing up like f- seven pages of extended combat. Mm. Uh, and finally, though the the battle is for the most part over. And they've got stabilized. They kind of set some security. And here we go back to the book. Major John's his face in his hands as he sat down for the first time in hours. He couldn't help thinking of the death and agony to so many men so needlessly. It hurt damnably deep inside. And then a liaison officer from regiment came in with a lieutenant colonel, his staff, and all of his company commanders. They were from the 134th Regiment of the 35th Division, which was to relieve the 1st Battalion at once. Johns could hardly believe it. Even when he saw his replacements standing there looking fresh and confident, he was beginning to think the clay pigeons were supposed to go on forever, fighting all alone, except for the artillery. The new battalion commander wondered about Major Stat. Major John staff so he's got a guy coming in to take over they're getting relieved mm-hmm. and the guy says you know hey what's up where's your battalion staff back to the book John's explained and as he did he reviewed in his mind all that had happened in the short 30 days since the first attack in the boy de Bretel his whole forward staff was gone Newcomb Sadler Carter and McCarthy dead Weddell and Hoffman wounded. Grimsell out commanding a company. Nab, Ryan, Todd, Stowen, Kordiak, Kenny, and Detman all wounded. Besides, God knew how many other officers he'd, he had never even known by name. The company commanders from four companies killed or wounded mostly in the space of seven short action packed days. He stopped talking a while. He thought for a moment of all those fine people. When he glanced up, catching himself, he thought he was looking at a ghost. There stood Kenny, the shadow on his face wavering as the candle flickered in the faint breeze of his entry. So Kenny had been wounded and now he's back. In an instant, his troubles, his preoccupation with the, re- with re- the relieving officers were forgotten. Kenny, he cried, what in God's name are you doing here? Well, Major. I heard you got into town all right, but we're sh- sort of short of company commanders. I saw Todd, Detman, and Kordiak back there, so I thought I'd better get on up here and see if I could do anything. The docks will let you go these days if you can stand up straight for two minutes without falling down. The Major saw that Kenny was exhausted in spite of his cheerful attitude. He found out later that he had walked alone in the dark all the way f- from the division clearing station several miles to the rear in order to get back to the battalion. His legs and back were covered with bandages under his new shirt and pants. He said, well, old man, there isn't anything you can do right now. 
these nice people have just come in so we're gonna be out of this rat trap in a little while you just go back behind mrs. Blanchette here and lie down and get some rest you need it Kenny did as he was told the strain had begun to bend even his indomitable will at 0440 the major reported to regiment that the 134th infantry had taken over the wiremen took out the phone the major shook hands and said goodbye and good luck to the new arrivals then he and Kenny followed the companies down the hill just seven days ago they had numbered 800 they were now only 450 proud tired men the clay pigeons who had taken the core objective the clay pigeons and from Omaha Beach to the Elbe the 1st Battalion 115th Infantry 29th Division had 2,384 casualties including 454 men killed in action so that that's that's hard to even fathom again think about the fact that at this time a battalion was about it's supposed to be about 900 men and they'd taken 2384 casualties so all the replacements that came in kept getting wounded unbelievable and what's i mean you you got to read this book and get the lessons learned and and also you get lessons learned from that book but you can also get some of Major John's lesson learned from Colonel David Hackworth in his book about face and what's you want to talk about some layers some some historical layers check this out so in about face you know Hackworth talks about what happens in August 13th 1961 the communists in Berlin started stringing barbed wire and they were now going to build a wall between East and West Berlin and they you know Kennedy who was president wanted to do something like you can't just you know we need to we need to make some kind of a statement here so he sent 1500 soldiers from the first battle group of the 8th infantry division and they were selected apparently by Kennedy by name so Kennedy said I want these guys and the reason is because their commander was a guy named Glover s. Johns and he wanted them to go and reinforce the British French and American troops who were on the ground in Berlin and then layers Colonel Johns in his position appointed D company in his battle group he, he pointed D company to be the battle groups reaction force and who was the commander of D company it was a young Korean War veteran 
who had come back into the army named Captain at the time David Hackworth and as I said Hackworth points to Glover Johns as his primary source for leadership lessons learned and he captured them coming succinctly from Glover Johns himself in about face so let's take it back to that book for a minute here from about face all too soon Colonel Johns received orders back to Berlin as chief of intelligence so now this whole thing that they'd gone through with sending this this force to reinforce the French British and in American troops on the ground in Berlin this is pretty much done all too soon Colonel Johns received orders back to Berlin as chief of intelligence most of us had known the magic couldn't last forever but it didn't change the fact that we were incredibly sad to see him go on 15 January 1962 the battle group fell out smartly for its final review before our favorite soldier the weather was bitterly cold but no one noticed we were all too busy standing tall and greedily soaking in the colonel's farewell address Johns was a leader who taught by example so most of the points he made weren't exactly new to us but to hear it in a single speech this great man's basic philosophy of soldiering was like being led on letting in on the secret ingredients of some magical formula to wit strive to do small things well be a doer and a self-starter aggressiveness and initiative are two most admired qualities in a leader but you also must put your feet up and think so there's a little dichotomy he's hitting on yeah you got to be aggressive but you got to think strive for self-improvement through constant self-evaluation you gotta be humble never be satisfied ask of any project how can it be done better don't over inspect or over supervise allow your leaders to make mistakes in training so they can profit from the errors and not make them in combat decentralized command keep the troops informed telling them what how and why builds their confidence the harder the training the more the troops will brag boom remember that guy that asked the last podcast how do I improve the morale of a, of a group get them get them to have yeah. pride mm-hmm. train hard yeah. next enthusiasm fairness and moral and physical courage four of the most important aspects of leadership enthusiasm fairness and moral and physical courage next showmanship a vital technique of leadership that's interesting Mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of in about face Hackworth he he specifies some of these things that he would that that uh, Glover Johns would do showmanship wise he'd walk down the range and he was a really good shot mm-hmm. with a rifle mm-hmm. and apparently he would have a guy throw a quarter like a coin up sure. in the air mm-hmm. and he'd shoot it 
because he was such a good shot. That and another thing he did, he's he's about to give a speech somewhere, mm. and in sort of a mixed audience, but bunch of German, um, sort of political people. Mm-hmm. Glover Johns gets up and just gives the speech in German. <laughs> All right, next. The ability to speak and write well. Two essential tools of leadership. Boom. Next, there is a salient difference between profanity and obscenity. While a leader employs profanity tempered with discretion, he never uses obscenities. Next, have consideration for others. Hmm. Next, yelling detracts from your dignity. Take your men aside and counsel them. Next, understand and use judgment. Know when to stop fighting for something you believe is right. Discuss and argue your point of view until a decision is made, and then support the decision wholeheartedly. Last, stay ahead of your boss. When Johns had finished, Colonel Couch gave the order to pass in review, and company by company we marched by with just that little extra precision. Our shoes, uniforms, and brass earlier attended to to provide just that little extra sparkle. As was the custom, the company commanders peeled off after their units passed in the review stand and congregated for a final goodbye. Johns had watched the parade with tears in his eyes. The tears remained as he stood at attention. So, tears in his eyes. That is Major Glover Johns. That is the Clay Pigeons. That is the 1st Battalion, 115th Infantry, 29th Division. And obviously, he is an example of leadership. And the men of his battalion, the Clay Pigeons, they are yet another example of the indomitable warrior spirit and culture that is the very core of this nation don't forget that don't forget that culture don't ever forget it and for those of you out there right now defending our nation that spirit and that culture it can work to hold you up and having it in your brain can keep you strong in trying times but there's also a dichotomy there because not only does that warrior spirit and warrior culture hold you up you also have to hold it up 
you have to maintain that warrior culture in the way you think and in the way you act. And if you ever start to forget how you're supposed to think and how you're supposed to act, then remember Colonel Glover Johns and the clay pigeons of St. Lo. And I think that's all I've got for tonight, Echo Charles. Yes, sir. So, I guess speaking of maintaining. Yes. Maybe you could tell us how we could maintain support of this podcast if you if you want. If they want. And for ourselves hey what is fire for effect oh yeah fire actually this is awesome so you're on a radio and you're watching you're calling artillery or you're calling uh, naval gunfire or you're calling air support and you're trying to get them to hit this target whatever that target might be let's say trying to get them to hit a building where there's moosh and they get a direct hit Mm -hmm. and now you say fire for effect yeah, that means you don't need to make any more adjustments. You can just start hammering that thing. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, okay. Fire for effect. Gotcha. So when somebody does something huh. and it's on target, you're like, yeah, fire for fire effect. Gotcha. Yep. Oh dang. Okay. I that's didn't, what it is. That's one of those ones that you know I I I'd hear all you and Leif always say it, and you know certain. Do we terms, say it that much? Not no, not that much. Oh, okay. But I that's You've where I would it. hear You've it. it yeah. Hear it kind of come out. Uh, and you know how certain terms. If you're not familiar with them, you can kind of gather what it means, yeah, you, you know, kinda, in, in the context, in the context, and, right. in the words and stuff like that. But that one, I, was, I never could really figure out exactly what that means, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, fire at will, or you know, all the all these other things that you hear. Yeah, fire for effect. Fire for effect. Because it could, one. it kind of sounds like it could mean like to distract them or something, to have some effect oh, other than hitting yeah. the target no, or something that. like that. Yeah, apparently it not. Get after uh, it. Yeah, apparently it's the opposite, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it's all good. Yeah, it's just amazing to come up with these these guys, man. Yeah, and and I'm telling you, like, and I've said this before, that thread of, and I I, I actually don't like using the word warrior culture. Yeah, because because it's so overused. overused yeah, man, it's so overused, and it it's it just it's it's been so degraded yes. by this horrible meaningless things that guy's a warrior you know what i mean because he yeah. you know did yeah, whatever. committed a crime and actually survived his uh, prison term yeah well, that guy's a real warrior, War warrior. No, no no actually no. you're not yeah you know it's different but but there's no other word that i can put on it at least that i could think of right now when you talk about <laughs> the american culture and it's so easy because america's a big place Mm. And America's got a lot of good things going for it, yes. and a lot like you know, the culture of art of art in America's massive. Yeah. The culture of music is is unbelievably powerful here. The culture of education and academia, all these things are massive in America, yeah. right? And and it's really easy 
to forget the culture this the most in my mind the most powerful culture that we have now I could be wrong oh I mean what about our entrepreneurial spirit and culture right that's huge here very strong yes. our capitalist culture we want to make money we want to grow we want to do things right those are all really really powerful and I think we tend to forget we tend to forget we want to we want to say that you know the Japanese Bushido culture is this thing we should look up to guess what Guess what? That Bushido culture versus the U.S. Marines, you know, storming beaches in heavily defended beaches. And guess what? Yeah. The the American warrior culture. That's the that's the real deal. Yeah. That's the real deal. The Nazis. Oh, the stormtroopers. Oh yeah, those were such a warrior culture. Guess what? Compare them to these guys. Yeah. No, not happening. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, these and you hear this a lot like that there was a little part in the book where the guy got his legs blown off or something like that and he was like I'll be back. Yep, I'll you be know? back. He's like and it it really seemed like he was he wasn't pissed about his legs. He was pissed that he's uh, out yeah. of the game For and sure. he's like I'm letting guys down. I'm going, you know. Yeah. I think a lot of times and you know America is kind of one an example where you know when th- all things are going real good, it's easy to point out the things that are not going good. You know, like you're, I don't know, wh- whatever the case may be. Like when, if everything's perfect, the little imperfections show themselves more. You know how like if your life is like everything's together, where, yeah, yeah. you know, your job is good and your family's good or whatever. But meanwhile, like your, I don't know, your front lawn is going brown. <laughs> you're like, my front lawn's going brown. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I think that's what we have in the u.s it's kind of like we things are really i think good. it's i think it's more just a matter of percentage i mean i, I think in america right now it's like one percent of the population is actually in the military i mean all these world war ii veterans not many of them left the yeah. vietnam veterans are getting older hmm. korean vet- veterans are very very rare at this point hmm. so and what are our movies about you know instead of making movies about Saint Low, they make movies about the aliens attacking or whatever. Yeah. You know, so we just it's pretty easy to forget that the reason we're here and the reason we're not speaking German yeah. is or the reason we're not speaking Japanese is because of this warrior culture here, which kind of it's right up there. Yeah. It's right up. You show me any warrior culture that has the same that, you know, I know there's equivalents. I know that there's other I know there's other military units in the world and other countries that have a proud military tradition as well, but yeah. you know, obviously I'm biased towards mine. Yeah. But uh we're you tell me any historical unit that you say, Oh, the, these guys were the Spartans and they were the real warriors. Right, right. You know, you haven't really spent much time with a nineteen year old Marine. Yeah. You you haven't spent much time with a with a with with a soldier from an airborne division. You, you just you just you got to meet those guys. Yeah, I'm telling you, they're the real deal. Yeah, and no matter what kind of you know historical warrior you want to you want to throw out there, I'll put my Americans against the head to head. Just in terms of just straight up warrior culture and spirit. Yeah. I'll go I'll go toe to toe. I'll yeah. go toe to toe. For sure. I'm not I'm not trying to say we're better. Yeah. But I'll go toe to toe with the Spartans. Yeah. I'll go toe to toe with them. 
and I'm just talking, you know, my warrior culture against your warrior culture and the way you lived your life. You go, go meet some of these young soldiers and Marines out there. Yeah. You can come and talk to me and, and special operations guys. You know what I mean? Obviously. Yeah. Come, come and get some. Yeah, man. I dig it. Come in fire for effect. Sorry, bro. I don't, Do it. It's, I just learned the word. I'm trying to hey, fit it in. Warrior yeah. culture doesn't get through all of America. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. You know. Nonetheless, we are down to support ourselves. I was going to make some a, a wisecrack about Hawaii, but you know. Yeah, you might you might get dealt with. No, not going to do that because yeah, no. no because uh, massive. There's a there's a great book that somebody sent me, mm-hmm. and. It's about Japanese Americans that formed up. You know, we sent Americans sent many Japanese to internment camps in America yeah. in World War II. They also took a bunch of them and turned them into a fighting unit. For the four forty second. Yes, yeah. and they were they might be the most highly decorated unit of their of that size. Yeah. Uh, because, they, but a lot of them came from Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. a huge Japanese community in Hawaii. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of Hawaiian, like, okay, you know how like the old and warrior school? culture, Hawaii, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you am you I consider- allowed to just straight up say BJ Penn right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my boy Max Holloway, by the way. Uh, by the way, current yeah. champ. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. when Max came and trained with us. Yeah, I've told the story before, but man, what a what a beast. Yeah. He, you know what? He was training hard. Yeah. He was training hard. He wasn't even close to the UFC yet. This was years ago. Yeah. He wasn't close to the UFC yet. He had some warrior culture in him. Yeah. Get some. Super nice guy too. When you when you consider like even let's say the Spartans and you consider all their battles and stuff, this is like hand to hand, sword to neck uh, mm-hmm. battles. It's like dang, that's that's savage. But back in those days, look at all kinds of cultures so consider Hawaiian culture if you look at the weapons like you can look like in museum mm. just go online whatever look at the weapons that they used in battle and then consider like that's what you got to use it's like savage man it's yeah. like so yeah these uh, there there are a lot of legitimate warrior cultures they're just different there's no doubt and what I'm saying to, to encapsulate what I'm saying is America has one yeah. and it's yeah go toe-to-toe with any yeah other. don't slip don't sleep on that so, support support wise, I'm gonna shift gears here. So, I mean, you know, I I'm talking about kettlebells all the time. I feel like I'm talking about kettle not just now. I feel like I talk about kettlebells a lot. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things, you know, how like you go from thing to thing, and you're no. like, hey, <laughs> I mean, I go this to now. one thing only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. You go from thing to thing. Well, you know, I try to acquire knowledge and. What do you call skills? Mm -hmm. Capabilities? We'll say capabilities. That's important. Participation is required. Kettlebells is kind of like a thing that I recently got into. (laughs) And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm getting kind of good at them. (laughs) Jack. Brad, you know, because consider, okay, here's, I'm going to go into numbers, whatever. So my Metcon was, is, was, um, I'll do 135. Clean your jerk? Clean and press, okay. jerk, whatever. Press, press is jerk, like yeah. just pressing, yes. right? Jerk is kind of like yeah. you jerk your whole yep. body kind of yep. thing. Okay, so it's clean and jerk with 135, you know, yep. the wheels. Uh, five, and then to burpees, five. Mm-hmm. Walk for 30 to 35 seconds. Mm-hmm. Walk. Boom, do it again. Mm-hmm. So anywhere from, I don't know, 
I'd say about eight sets would be like a, a solid one. Usually, yes, yes, it's why are you six. doing the thirty second walk? By the way, it's like a, the, the recovery. It's like it's like you're breathing. That's why. Okay, so it helps. Wait, why should I not do that? I Is don't that do that. I'd be going five, 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 no, five. Oh, you five, wouldn't. Five. All right, I challenge <laughs> you right now. We're gonna do it together, and you just go five, five. We'll okay. see who can go longer. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, it, it, I might the die. Contest wouldn't be to go longer. Well, whoever whoever stops the rhythm, I'm saying that the rest is is part recovery. Here, here's the goal. That's why. Well, let me ask what, you this: how, what, how long does it take you? Like thirty seconds to do? Does it take thirty seconds to do the five and five? Yeah, no, 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 no more. No, 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 more than thirty. So you do five clean and press, right? Boom, five burpees. Yeah, it's more than 30 seconds. For yeah, sure. Maybe 45 at the most. Yeah, at the mo- yeah, maybe 45, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. It's more than 30, though, for sure. Okay, well, then I guess it might be all right. So you should put that on a timer, though. You shouldn't I be do. saying like a minute 30, I rest for 30 to 35. You should be like, okay, I'm doing it. Oh, because you're saying uh, like the tabat. Like yeah. The, the, well, the, the you, should do, you should do a minute 30 seconds and every, no, and every minute and 30 seconds, you do the five and five. Okay. So and so that okay. way you get. Because by the by the sixth set, you'll be like tired when you're starting it. Right. But you don't want to rest more. Yeah. You want to push yourself. This is kind of my thought. My thought process on it is, I'm going to do a certain kind of work capacity. You know, mm-hmm. like a you know five reps of this and five reps of this, and then I'm going to have a have a kind of an active recovery period walking. Yep. And here's the thing. And here's kind of the goal. This is good. I actually I actually am going back on what I said. I think this is actually not a bad idea because. But you need to put it's like when I do sometimes I'll do stuff on the minute Yeah, what makes me nervous about what you're saying is like I like rest for about 30 to 35 seconds No, I don't know what that means. Okay, okay because is, because that could be 40 seconds. Yeah, that could also be it's not you got a clock on Yes, okay. sir. And that's 100% cool. Proceed. yes So the here's the weird thing about having a clock ever since I started lifting rest between sets has been a critical part yeah. of my lifting routine it's from the beginning rest between because it's just what I learned and stuff like that so I don't think the clock an actual clock has not been a part of a workout ever oh, that's it's, good. it's part of the it's like weights there's yeah. weights just like you're lifting those weights that's what the weights are for right. you're gonna rest in between sets that's what the clock is for you can't just go willy nilly and be like yeah I'll just throw okay. in whatever well, no, that's good and that's just my philosophy if I'm not on the clock of a one hour workout for me would take like two hours. Yeah, because no. I'll just I'll just be thinking about something, or I'll just take yeah. more rest than I should have taken, right. or whatever. It's yeah, bad. and consider this: if you're doing, let's say you're doing five sets of squats, mm-hmm. five sets, of, I don't know, eight, we'll say, mm-hmm. and you're pushing mm-hmm. on your second set, you can do more weight than or less weight than on your first set if you rest for less time. You're right. So if you rest for five minutes, you can do way more. Yeah. So the, that's putting your body through something different than if you would have just rested less. So it just depends on what you're trying to put your body through, what you can recover from, and what kind of results. Or one of goals the hardest. One of the hardest workouts is, and this is in this is in discipline equals freedom field manual. I used to do the twenty rep squat workout. Sure. Which is you take a weight that you can do ten times and you do it twenty times. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. And and it's it's devastatingly hard. And I would rest for 20 minutes and then I would do it again and then I would rest for 20 minutes and then I would do it again. <laughs> Jeez, so three bro. sets of that. Yeah. That is. That, okay. That's so, no joke. so technique and I, I believe you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that. But that being said, technically that's impossible. Technically, yes, you're right. It is <laughs> so, impossible to do something that you only do ten times to twenty times. 20 yes, times, yeah. it is if impossible. you can do 
the weight that you right. do 10 for him for 20 times, that's the way you can do for 20 times. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Straight you're right, up, right, it's not right, 10. Right. So I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you're right. Yeah. But you also understand what I'm talking about. I know about. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You're like a normal, like you're not maxing out at 10 reps on the, with this weight. It's yeah. like, it, this is my would, normal maybe if I'm going to do a set of 10 or so. You would be surprised that the weight you can get, like let's say, you know, you, you, you pick the right weight that you can, like I could do this 10 times. Yeah. L- legitimately. And yeah. then you're like, you know what? I'm going to do it 20 times. I know, it's but. It's freaking I, sucks. I, I dig it. You're right. And, but I think that's like a curse of knowledge kind of situation. Like when you say I'm going to do a weight. 20 times what I can, you know, let's say for lack of a better term, yeah, normally do 10. But it's not normal also. You're like, you're basically, you're resting as much as a human being can rest with a bunch of weight on their back yeah. in between reps. Yeah. When you get to rep 12, you're taking like time. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a really, it's a losing proposition because while you're waiting there, <laughs> resting, you're actually <laughs> suffering yeah, and your yeah. back started to get all, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, no, yeah, I That's get it. That's why overhead squats are brutal because Con- you're not resting in an overhead squat uh, yeah. position. And it's like awkward and yeah, that that's hard the overhead squat situation. But and not to beat a dead horse here. So like consider if you said, "Hey, uh, uh someone who's n- pretty new more or less to working out, say, "Hey, get a weight you can do for 10 and do it 20." They're going to mess up in one way. Tip probably. They're going to be like, "Okay, I can do this 10 times. I know that." And I'm going to try to do 20. They can't even get to get 20 because you said the weight that they could do for 10. They try for 20. They fail at 10. That's how much they can do for 10. Or they'll go the other way. They'll be like, you'll be like, oh, get up. And they'll be like, wait, I got to do this 20 times. Oh, sure. yeah. Uh, yeah, I can do this. I can do the bar 10 times. So I'll just use the bar mm. kind of thing. So you have that knowledge where you, you're you like, hey, I know the weight that I yeah. can do for 10 and it'll be hard. But you know what? I'm going to get nuts. And if I really push myself, I can get 20. Guess what? I'm using that weight. So you kind of have that because you've been training yeah, all the yeah. time. No, you, so I get you, it. You and you, yeah, you're right. And I don't think I'll ever do that, even though I kind of considered it last time you mentioned it. But then when I got in the in the workout room, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll ever do that. Maybe I will. I don't know. You will. Actually, I'll tell you what I will do is someone online, maybe it was you, someone was saying uh, 100 burpees in 10 minutes. 10 yeah. minutes. Was that you saying yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And Brand- Brandon just texted me yesterday. Yeah. Brandon. Yeah. Brandon Craigworth. Yeah. Yeah, he said he's gonna do it. I, I was considering I'm gonna do it in the first it's time I do it. It's not that hard. That's I'm what I so thought. surprised that Brandon Brandon's a good shape. Yeah. You ever see he he posts like pictures of himself doing these crazy push up workouts? Yeah, I can't believe he can't do it. That's why I'm so surprised. This is what I'll he does do. weird. He does good creative push up drills. Does yeah. weird creative push up drills. Like what? I don't know. He's doing some weird stuff. He puts his hands up here, over right, there. Right. Yeah, that's good. Awkward, but yeah, totally good. Yeah, because you ever try like I, I got good at push ups when I was thinking. Actually, I'm still pretty solid at push ups. But you try to do a push up with, you know, yeah, like adjusted. Offset, you're like, oh, yeah. this is way off. It's kind of like goes back to what we were saying. It's like what you're used to with your neuromuscular. Yeah. Speaking of what we were saying. <laughs> Were you saying there was something about kettlebells? Yeah, that you I'm into very that quickly, now. Concisely, kind of wrap up right now. Yeah. Then you started talking about other other crazy squats that's, and whatnot. That's you know what it is my fault. Next time I won't say anything. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what that's what I see. What you did there. Look, you took blame. <laughs> you and you told me what you're going to do to fix it. Yeah. Dang, extreme ownership. In effect. Um. Also, okay. Wait. What What were we talking about? Oh yeah, I'm into kettlebells now. Yeah. And you want to say where you should get your kettlebells? I'm not saying necessarily where you should. I'm saying where I got them. Okay. And if you want, you can get kettlebells anywhere. Where? Really? What about cool kettlebells? Cool. Okay. <laughs> Whoa, that's a different story, my friend. Anyway, I got mine from Onnit. 
I'm not even saying get the cool kettlebells. I'm saying go to onnit.com slash Jocko. Look at the kettlebells. You like those kettlebells? If you're going to get into kettlebells, or if you're already currently into kettlebells, get some of those if you like them. I like them. I got one, uh, the small one. It's called Howler. A little Howler monkey. Mm-hmm. I think it's a monkey. Anyway, Howler monkey. Kettlebell, it's like, uh, I want to say 18 pounds. What's point five pood? Eight pounds. A pood is 16 pounds. Yeah. No, no, no. 16 kilos, I think. Oh, sorry. 16 kilos, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so eight kilos, 16 pounds, give or take, 17, 18 pounds. Um, anyway, I got one of those for my daughter. So my nephew comes, visits, he's 11. Not into working out, we'll just say that. Yeah, um, is now. Is now, yeah. So I'm like, you know, he's one of these kids. He's like, you know, he's into uh, math and whatnot. So I'm working out all the time. And I never really thought until someone maybe kind of suggested it to say, hey, come work out with me, you know. So I tell him come work out, and he I kind of caught him at the end where it was Metcon time, and he was, and I was like, hey, come work out because I saw him, you know, and uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, cool, immediately too. Yeah. By the way, probably you'd be surprised. I'm not surprised. Yeah, man, I'm not surprised. Kids, they normal. see you working out. They're like, man, I want to be like that. Yeah, you know, in their head. Imagine but when sometimes you were shy. a kid. Remember you saw somebody that was all yoked? You're like, how do yeah. I do that? It's the whole reason I work out. To be honest with you, like remember the show American Gladiators. Remember that yeah, show? Yeah, but it was not from when I was a kid. Yeah, no, no, no. You're, like, I didn't watch it the way you were apparently yeah, watching Yeah, bro, it. I was watching that. I was like, bro, I want to be an American Gladiator because they were, they were, it was like, because there were the, the mix between these big kind of almost like bullies, not bullies like mm-hmm. bully people, but they were like, you know, when you play a video game, you come against the boss who you look at him, you're like, I can't beat this guy. I can't beat him. But you, and you're a normal character or whatever, and then they end up winning. That's what American Gladiators was in real life. And I was like, dang, those American Gladiators are, are, are money because they're athletic too so i was like man i'd I'd watch it and i'd do a bunch of push-ups i was in like sixth grade or something like Mm -hmm. that yeah that's the whole reason anyway i think a lot of kids have that in their mind especially the boys for sure in one way or another so i was like hey come work out with me and he's like he's like okay puts down his phone yeah he was on the phone not anymore boom out there little uncle jake scenario Uh, uncle jake 100 percent. i was uncle jake at that time legit nephew Mm -hmm. is there actually he was visiting me i wasn't visiting but nonetheless he comes, I teach him the form. And kids kind of have good form. Well, they he do, did. Because they're flexible. Yeah, they're flexible. They they uh, they haven't fallen into like improper patterns. Yeah. Maybe. Like yeah. like adults have or, or something maybe. I don't know. That's just a guess. But anyway, so I'm like, you know, the, just the basic kettlebell swing. Mm-hmm. I, say, I say, this is what you're going to do. Do it. I'll do it. I'll show you how. Give him little, little tips or whatever. You know, it wasn't perfect for him. At first, you'd adjust and, and he could do it. Not the kind of all the way up or nothing, just a basic. I was mm-hmm. like, all right. And my daughter happened to be there, and so she knows about burpees. So I was like, okay, what we're going to do is we're gonna, you're going to do kettlebell swings, five, and then you're going to do burpees. And then we're going to walk for 30 seconds, basically. Med- yeah. Med- 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 but he's doing the kettlebell swings rather than the clean and press. So um, then you're going to do burpees. Burpees is just jump down, do a push-up, and then jump up in there. That's a burpee. So he does it. I was like, mm, well, on the you know, when you transition from standing to push-up, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's some wiggle room there for air. So I yeah. go, oh. I tell my daughter, hey, demonstrate. She does. She's four. She can do it pretty good, too, mm-hmm. by the way. So she does it. And um, so, of course, he can do it. He sees a little girl do it. So he does it. Makes the adjustment. Boom. He's good to go. He's ready. So I'm getting fired up because mine's about to be super hard like it normally is. And he's like, you could tell he's getting fired up, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so I set the clock and we go. And his was kind of easy, to be honest with you, because yeah. the kettlebell swings kettlebell compared light. to the. Yeah. And boom, that kid did did the whole thing. And he's all sweating afterwards, you know, and 
he's the kind where he doesn't do that kind of stuff, you know, but you could tell he was super fired up. And you know what he said next? Uh, what he said afterwards? He's like, hey, next time you work out, can you let me know? There you Straight go. Straight up. I was like, good dang. Uncle Echo's in the house. In the house, man. In the house. Yeah. So she anyway. read a book about that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I will. It'll be the best book ever All right, for next, kids. Next. Anyway. Kettlebells going on it. They have a lot of good stuff. You ever done battle ropes before? Yes. You have, but, but not, not. I never have. Like I, they were in some random gym I was at right. one time. I was like, oh, I've seen people doing this. I'm yeah. gonna do some of them. Yeah, they're like big, yeah, yeah big ropes, and they, they, I guess that's a good exercise. I, I'd never done them before, but I was considering that. I saw some on there. Anyway, there's a lot of good stuff on it.com/slash Jocko. Check out all the stuff. Really good stuff. Stuff for everything, basically. Everything getting after it. Also, good way to support is when you get your copy of About Face, of course. That's already on it on our website, jocklepodcast.com. Here's a, that's the website, if you didn't know. Cla- the Clay Pigeons of St. Lowe. That's the current book we just went over. That one is on the website as well. It's in the little section. Menu item on the top of the website, jocklepodcast.com. Click books from episodes. Boom, the list of books by episode. Click through there. Yeah, and before you tweet me and tell me a good book that I should do on the podcast, check and see if I've already done it. Yeah, there's like what, like 60 books or yeah. so? Yeah, and, and a, a lot of really good books that everyone knows, but if you haven't listened to the podcast and then you're telling me to cover With the Old Breed by Eugene Sledge or uh, whatever, just so yeah. a lot of times people tell me to cover books that have already been on there. Yeah. So then I got to go and figure out which podcast it was so I can tell you to go and listen to podcast, you know, 10. Yeah. Which is with the old breed by Eugene Sledge. There you go. I think. Yeah, something like that. But if, yeah, hey, hey you want to check that out? Like I said, it's all there by episode. Yeah. And if you want a book, a reading list from me, that's my reading that's list. That's it. Yeah. yeah. There's no other books. If yeah. a book is good and I read it, it's it's been on the podcast. And I'll do you one better because I have a small reading list that I added to that list. Oh, the it's only one Charles. book, but I'm just saying. <laughs> what is it mind games? Mind games, yes. Powell, Michael Powell. Um, you know that's an easy read. It's like, yeah. it's kind of like the field manual, a small little version, different subject, but nonetheless, it's not like the field manual, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no. I haven't even read it, but I know no. it's not. No, 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 probably not. Anyway, um, back to this. Uh, as far as supporting, get your books through there. Click through it. Goes to Amazon. You shop Amazon like we all do anyway, right? So when you get these books. Like I said, listed by episode, click through there. And if you're doing other shopping, hey, feel free, you know? When you click through there, that's a small little action. Big reaction as far as support goes, you know? Kind of like, you know, when you throw sodium metal in water, you know? Oh, I know. Yeah, you know, I haven't said it for a long time. So I'm going to say it now just to remind everybody, when you throw sodium metal in water, it explodes big, huge. I learned that in chemistry class. My chemistry teacher's name was Mr. Bigelow, by the way. Kauai High School. Back in the day. Anyway, also a good way to support, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and other places that they do podcasts. And leave a review. Leave a review. <laughs> Here's a, If you feel like it. Yeah, that's really I what like it is. I like reading the reviews, but... Yeah, if you feel like leaving one. Apparently, yeah. it's like, it helps, but oh, wait, whatever okay, yeah. and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. And that's great. For sure, that's great. Yeah, no, helpful. It spreads the yeah. What does it do? Spread, Spread the, the word. word. I think ultimately, that's the benefit. So, uh, you know, when I see our Jocko podcast on, you know, number 
whatever where it appears mm-hmm. like between one and ten in the business section. That is good. That's cool. But really, the tangible benefit for the message is is spreading the word. Right. People, if they get turned on to it, it, it improves everybody's life, really. Because if you improve your life in in all these ways, it improves. Like, your improvement re- is a direct effect on my improvement because I hang around with you. <laughs> so that's kind of how it is. So that's really the benefit. So If you want to help spread the word, yeah. you can write a review. Yeah. And if you want to give feedback about the podcast, that's a good place to do yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's it. And let's face it. When you leave a review, especially the ones that everyone leaves, because it's kind of fun. That part yeah, yeah, is yeah. fun, and people aren't people. People like take time in the reviews. They're like good podcast. Yeah. Well, actually, sometimes they do say that. Yeah, they're yeah. saying good <laughs> <laughs> emphasis on co- yeah. a capital G O O D. Yeah, that's podcast. how layers. Mm-hmm. Layers Even, in the review. Yeah, Dang, they're everywhere. everywhere. But I'm telling you. But anyway, yeah. Hey, look, if you're in the mood, leave a review. You know, as long as you're honest, that's the main thing. And, you know, get colorful with it if you want. Those are actually the fun ones. Like I said. Anyway, leave a review. Yeah, sure. If you if you feel like it. Uh, subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube. We have YouTube. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know. Everyone knows, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because we see it all the time. But in the event of this being <laughs> the first time. why wouldn't you subscribe to it, then? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't someone subscribe to it? If I were a person who oh wait if you're listening to the podcast it makes sense yeah, yeah. I don't know how many reasons there would ever be to okay. not well, subscribe yes you, if, here this is why what's the reason I listen to the podcast audio the, I look I go to YouTube and I only watch people playing first person shooter video games you know how that I don't know if you know this but this that's a thing like people will watch other people yeah. on YouTube videos playing shooter games okay let's say I'm only into that. I'm probably not going to subscribe or actually this one's actually a legitimate one that I can kind of dig and relate to is if my YouTube subscribing situation is only to kids stuff, only to kids stuff because every once in a while I give my phone to my kid Mm, Okay, and they watch like, you know, they watch like Peppa Pig or I don't know something. Well, and then boom, they click on (laughs) the reason I say this is because. A lot of times the podcast is just what the podcast is on YouTube, but like the other day you released a deleted scene. It wasn't yeah. even deleted, it was a pre-recording, we were just talking. Yeah, before. And people seem to think it was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> even I thought it was quite I funny. I thought it was funny, yeah, because <laughs> when you're detached, it is yeah, really but, funny. But the thing is, if someone wasn't listening, if someone's not on subscribe to YouTube, they yeah. would never know that yeah. that existed. Yes. And then you miss it. That's and it's true. pretty funny. Yeah, I thought it was funny too. Yeah. Even though it was kind of kind of harsh, you, you know, would you call me getaway sticks or something like that? <laughs> Messed up. Anyway, yeah. See, now you're you just went into the reasons to subscribe. Oh, there's a whole reason. Yeah. Good, because you know the the excerpts that we make put mm-hmm. out just cut tiny segments, three minutes nowadays. Even though the even though take. the deleted scene was sixteen. Yeah, minutes. you know that's different. But but um, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but the excerpts, you know, they're just like individual ideas that you talk about. Boom, shareable. All good. That's a good reason to subscribe to YouTube. One of the many, in my opinion. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. That's the URL. On there, what do we have? Shirts. Rash guards. Rash guards, uh, we started f- for jujitsu. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Rash guards are for surfing and bodyboarding. And jacking steel jacking steel yes cycling mm-hmm. these are all that's what really 
like a it's a spandex shirt. There's little things. Yeah, in I it. guess I the term rash guards only applies to surfing and because it doesn't yeah. you're not worried about getting a rash when you're lifting yeah. weights you're not worried about getting a rash i guess uh, yeah i guess in jujitsu jiu jitsu or something yeah, like yeah, this yeah i guess so yeah guard you against rash or or ringworm or whatever yeah. sort yeah, of nasty yeah so nonetheless i mean the point there is that it's for everything just because you hear jocko talking about jujitsu all on, the time you know what it's not for everything because i don't want to <laughs> see you at okay. the club <laughs> Inner, uh, inner, get after yeah. it, rash guard. Well, that's you can speak for yourself because <laughs> if I saw someone at the club with a get after it rash guard, I would, I would say good evening to that person. Oh, that's a good point. And I, I guess I could take away from them. But <laughs> yeah, no, you can't be mad at them. No, uh, actually, uh, I can't be. No, no rash guards when you're out, not doing activities. Yeah. I'm not a supporter of that. Yeah. You know what? To be to be be completely honest, I don't know that I would support it. Or just recommend rolling around. It. I mean, just like, hey, I'm going out. I'm going to the supermarket. Put on my get after it rash guard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, guess if you you're just that. like, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. You might want to be ready. Right. It's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you get some good workouts in a grocery store yourself. You know, know you're I carrying do. the six pack an extra for you know long line. Yeah. If you're in the rash guard, your compression, you're ready. It's absolutely true, and you know you want to look into that. Go to jockostore.com. So, the shirts on there, I, you know, I try to add like a new one every what, like month or mm, so. I don't know take. what your goal is. Yeah, I don't know if I actually I, have a goal. I, I've been wearing Bronson's Children T-shirt. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. Because that's that's yeah. The, the, yeah, that's the that's shirt that you made. <laughs> <laughs> the one that you made with my face on it, uh-huh. whatever, dang. So I'd always get caught up on the front, like, haha, that's funny. Mm-hmm. The front and all the layers on the front, but on the back it says, good evening. So when you wear that one, that's when people are going to talk to you the most. You know how, like, uh, you don't wear the one with your face on it ever, do you? No. There's no reason for you to. That would okay. be weird. <laughs> yeah, it would be weird. Say, I already yeah. have my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need two of them. You're wearing my face uh, right now. Yeah, exactly. enough. Yep, look at that. Um, but if you wear that one, it says good evening on the back. So I I never really thought of this. I haven't worn it. I don't even have one. But that's the when I'd wear this one, the mm-hmm. one with good, people will say something. They were like, good. Or be like, oh, you're good. It's backwards. Your shirt's backwards. I don't know. Or who's that guy in your shirt? Whatever. People will, will say something to you. Mm-hmm. The good evening one, they'll talk to you even more. But they'll do it from behind. They'll tell you good evening every single time. Interesting. You haven't worn it yet. How do you know this? No, because I know. <laughs> I, know. I know the compulsion. Like, I know the feeling. That's my hypothesis anyway. And from what I hear from the field. Anyway, go on there. If you like something, get something. That's a good way to support. There's some hats. Oh, really? Released? Coming out. (laughs) Within one week. How about that? Cool. Okay. All right. There it is. I better have like nine of them lined up at my doorstep because I need some of them hats. You got it, bro. I promise. Um, So, yeah, some patches on there as well. Anyway, check it out. If you like something, get something. Also, Psychological Warfare. If you don't know what that is, it's an album with tracks. (laughs) Jocko tracks. It's Jocko talking, getting you through various points of weakness in your. I've been I've been really trying to think of a word to say other than journey. Mm-hmm. I yeah, haven't yet, so yet. we're gonna stick with journey. So when you're Break on your journey, you're trying to wake up. <laughs> you're trying to wake up early. Maybe I will. Do it. You're trying to work out. Well, you're trying to work out. <laughs> you're trying to work source. out every day. 
every day now. Mm-hmm. Even on rest days, you're doing a mobility watch for sure. like this. Yeah. Man, sometimes you want to turn those those workout days into rest days. So don't do that. And if you need a little spot with that, you listen to Psychological Warfare. There's a track for that, for any, any point of weakness, like I said. Get after it. Psychological Warfare. Amazon Music, iTunes, various other MP3 outlets. Jocko Willing. Now, uh, first, if you haven't heard yet, we are now in league with Origin USA. Little company that we are now a part of. It's been months in the making. We've been going back and forth with my boy Pete Roberts. And who actually, this is, you wanna talk about layers? The reason that we are linked up in the beginning was because of Sarah Armstrong. Sure. who, Who heard me talking about how cool origin was yeah that they make everything in America yeah. she sent Pete an email and said hey I know you run this company and this guy was talking about you you guys should talk to each other guess what we talked and now we're getting after it Dang. and we joined forces so we're planning all kinds of things and uh, gear geese rash guards planning some supplements believe it or not is the rash guard back in stock not yet we were doing a little we're doing a lot of building right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we got all kinds of things coming. Basically, you know, basically, I want to make everything that I use to get after it. Yeah, I yeah. want to make. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so everything, and I'm, I, and that, when I say everything, is not a long list. I don't use that much stuff to get after it. Yeah, I, I use a pretty small list. Yeah. But I want to make it, and I want to <laughs> make it in, in America. So. If you want to check it out, check out OriginMaine.com because it's in New England, mm-hmm. which is where I'm from. Dang it. No big deal. Layers. Layers indeed. And also, if you want to get into it, like now, you want to find out really what's going on, there's an Origin Immersion Jiu-Jitsu Camp in Maine. I realized I hadn't even explained what, what this is. Mm. You ever see, see, I'm from New England, so I know what this is. I know what a sure. camp is. You, you may or may not know. People in other parts of the country may or may not know. Mm-hmm. A camp in this form is in this situation it's a big lake mm-hmm. and on the lake there's a property mm-hmm. and on the property they have a bunch of little cabins yeah. a bunch of them yeah. like multiple cabins yeah. and when you go to a camp you stay in the cabins and then they have a kind of a central area well we are renting out the entire camp mm. I don't know how many cabins it's like dozens and dozens of cabins mm-hmm. right all these things on a lake and then there's a main kind of gathering area. Well, guess right. what we're putting the in the main. Ga- guess what we're putting in the main gathering area. Lay it on me, Matt. <laughs> so we're gonna go. You 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 know if you want to come, you come up. You come to Maine. It's three hours from Boston. It's an f- half an hour from Augusta, Maine. We're gonna be there. Echo and I are gonna be there. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. There's two sessions that are going on. The first one is the twenty, the twentieth through the twenty third, I think. Yeah, the 20th through the 23rd. So Echo and I are going to be there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So we're going to be a part of both sessions. Mm-hmm. And so come to that. And what we're going to do is we're going to train jujitsu, but you can only train jujitsu so many hours a day. So what else are we going to do? We're going to hang out. Yeah. We're going to cruise. Cruise big time. We're going to do some kind of. There's a big lake there. So you can't surf in the lake, but we'll figure something water <laughs> activity out, right? Sure. 
and we're, they're making lobster and I don't like lobster but I'm gonna have steak and you can have lobster and yeah. and uh, yeah so we're gonna be hanging out wait so the lake is the lake cold can we swim in the lake you can swim in the lake regardless of how cold it is I don't know about I don't know the temperature of the lake but <laughs> Maine summertime it'll be it's not gonna be yeah. freezing okay I don't think and if it is good it's good for your muscles right right recovery <laughs> and, and also during this so during this thing too if you come up or if you can't make that and you want to come up for this anyways we're having the grand opening of our new origin factory in Farmington Maine so big factory 20,000 square feet I think it's bigger than 20,000 square feet uh, everyone's invited to that come hang out you know I was thinking we do like we'll do like a Q&A or something we'll hang out we'll br- I'm gonna bring books we'll, we'll just we'll just kick it so come up to that that is the 23rd of August in Maine come and hang out like I said what is the jiu-jitsu part of it what how does that work like the you know there's two weeks you can go for the whole thing but, no it's not two weeks it's one week long it's from the 20th to the 27th okay, yeah. but it's broken two in into one two weekend. sessions so so when you mean sessions like what we all just roll you have different teachers they, yeah, there's it's different like a big teachers. There's black belt. Yeah, th- but but you know, I think we're doing. I think it's three sessions a day of jujitsu. Yeah. I mean, how how many sessions can you roll hard at? So some of them's gonna be like, hey, you know, I'll drill some technique with you, or hey, maybe you can right. go over some footlock stuff with me, or what? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there's gonna be some of that. Yeah. And but then there's a, also a bunch of different black belts gonna be there yeah, to hang yeah, out, like show moves. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. So immersion. Yeah, yeah immersion. That's yeah. how you learn. Gotcha. So I know Nako Nolan's coming to that from the West Coast. Respect. Yeah, he's coming out. He just hit me up. So yeah, come on up to that. We're gonna have a good time. Also, when we're there, we're gonna have some Jocko White tea. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's anyone that wants to instantly deadlift eight thousand pounds, yeah, you can get the Jocko White tea. If you need to crush an academic test, get Jocko White tea. If you need some right now, you can get some on Amazon. Books. We got some books for your kid or whatever kids you know. We got the Way of the Warrior Kid. There's lessons in there for everybody. Check it out. If you want the first edition of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, order it soon. Or go to your bookstore and tell them you want to get it, pre-order it, whatever you got to do, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, your local bookstore, get it. Now, I'm going to tell you, don't get this book for your wine-sipping book club. <laughs> Not a book for them. They won't like it. No. You're part of that club. Don't get it for them. You can still get it, but don't bring it to the book club. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're sipping wine. They're not in a game. <laughs> but if you want to get stronger, tougher, smarter, healthier, and more prepared all-around better person, get the book. Discipline equals freedom. Field manual comes out October 17th which means they're printing it almost now hmm. so that means if you don't order it it's going to be backed up you're not going to have it everyone else is going to have it they're going to have an edge on you Dang. maybe you never recover like that battle I was talking about earlier you know someone else gets the edge on you you just can't make it <laughs> also extreme ownership own it refer to it highlight it implement it spread the word get it for your team your company your organization wrote that with my brother Leif Babin so if you don't have that and you have copies for every single person that you've ever known get it for him (laughs) also echelon front leadership consulting assessments instruction me Leif Babin JP Donnell Dave Burke get the team organized and coordinated for action and for victory that's my recommendation if you want to 
get that process going email info at echelonfront.com finally the muster is september 14th and 15th in san diego all the other musters have sold out more than half the tickets for san diego have already sold out so this is going to sell out don't get left out in the cold you can register at extremeownership.com and if you need to talk to us before you see us at the immersion camp in maine and before you go to the muster in san diego you can find us on the interwebs the twitter the instagram that facebooky boy and also snapchat you're on snapchat bro? i'm on it i'm st- i'm learning from my children <laughs> okay good that's the way yeah. people communicate now the snapchat yeah, and i looked at the pages sure. guess what mm. wall street journal's on there the economist is on there it's not it's not this thing for your teenage 14 year old kid anymore well it is but yeah it, well it, maybe kind of got out of the, the basement as well so it maybe grew. i don't know there and, must be know, something to it i don't know i'm talking rubbish but I, I i have a snapchat i don't use it and i haven't like you know i think you gotta like confirm your account i was doing it because my daughter likes to make the faces yeah, you know, yeah, those yeah. crazy yeah, yeah, faces yeah. my youngest daughter likes to do that too yeah so she did it on my wife's phone all the time and then she hit me up for it like hey let me do she calls it snapchaps so she's <sighs> like let me snapchat she doesn't know what it is she thinks yeah. it's just a face, face thing, thing. Yeah. so i'm like all right so i tried to do it then sometimes i gotta confirm i was like nah so i, I didn't but i'm yeah i guess i'm like one foot in one foot out kind of thing well i'm, I'm not re- i haven't posted anything yet yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going, I almost did. I, try, I was like trying to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Dang, that's but good, Jay, man. But that's Jade good. told me, well, this is what Jade told me, which was smart. Yeah. This is what Jade told me. Your brother Jade. I said, you know, it's just, I don't really understand yeah. it. And he goes, that's why you need to do it. I know, bro. Oh, and Jade I was like, smart wow. Yeah. I said to myself, okay, you're right. Don't, like, oh, oh, I'm afraid of something. Why am I afraid of it? Don't understand it. How do you overcome that? Yeah. Because apparently it's, a good method of yeah, communication and, and men Jay, and not to say jade said so so it's right i'm not saying that but he's real smart with that kind of stuff like he knows he see he knows the trends mm-hmm. so he can like predict shit those yeah. stuff like how you know like how it'll work and who's gonna he's in fact he what he does now is ai artificial intelligence yeah. with applications and stuff like right. that so he he knows that stuff so it's like when he kind of says he can't help but be like ah you're right you know even if you don't yeah. know you're like well consider the source kind of thing in fact he got me into cryptocurrency investment yeah, yeah. so investment and i'm up 30 percent. that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> about it so i'm like all right yeah i hate to give him the credit for that but you kinda can't help it yeah, yeah good well you can find us on the interwebs echo is at echo charles and i am at Jocko willink and finally thanks to everyone that makes this podcast possible first our military whose strength and true warrior culture allows us the freedom to do what we want to do. And thanks to the police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, first responders who are ever vigilant and always ready. I was just driving back from Yosemite and there are big forest fires up there and all kinds of people had signs out saying, thanks to the firefighters so thanks for you guys up there in the mountains fighting the fires and to the rest of you that are 
out there working, building, making, and squeezing every ounce of life that you can. Crushing every minute of every day out there leading in the face of adversity and doing everything you can to be everything you can to all you thanks for being in the game with us and thanks for getting after it so until next time this is echo and jocko out